Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Shoes. Awooga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello and welcome to the second edition of the Dwarfcast Book Club, brought to you by Ganymede and Titan. This is the series where we reread, discuss and dissect the four Red Dwarf novels part by part. And as you might expect, we're continuing this week with Red Dwarf Infinity Welcomes Careful Drivers Part 2, Alone in a Godless Universe and Out of Shaken Vac. I'm Ian Symes and joining me as usual are Jonathan Capps. Hello. And Danny Stevenson. Present. Yes, sir. <laughs> Uh, and we also are armed with a document full of comments from our lovely uh, listeners slash readers uh, who've been uh, reading the book along with us and giving us quite in-depth thoughts <laughs> of theirs. We can't possibly hope to read them all out, uh, but we're going to pick out uh, a few where we can. Uh, but uh, thanks so much to everyone that commented. Please continue to do so over at www.ganymede.tv. Once again, uh, we expect you to be familiar with the novel as we go, uh, but if you haven't read them before, we're going to try not to skip ahead so that we don't give you too many spoilers. And if you missed the previous podcast, here's the story so far. Dave Lister is working as a hopper driver on Mimus, having woken up on the Saturnian moon after a Monopoly board pub crawl for his birthday. He gives a false mustachioed Space Corps officer a lift to an android brothel and then gets mugged. Meanwhile, on the mining ship Red Dwarf, George McIntyre commits suicide which comes as a great relief to his subordinate Saunders, a hologram struggling to cope with his own death, who will now be switched off. As a means of getting back to Earth, Lister signs up as a technician on Red Dwarf, meets fellow recruit Peterson and the ship's computer Holly, and then his roommate, none other than Rimmer, the whoremonger who pretended to be an officer. After five months of working under Rimmer in Z-Shift, Lister meets Kachansky and falls in love, but their relationship lasts only a month. Lister smuggles a cat, Frankenstein, on board so that he can get sent into stasis as a punishment, thus effectively speeding up his return to Earth. He is sentenced to three years. Upon hearing the news, and after having passed out whilst covered in sweaty ink during an exam, Rimmer heads to another stasis booth, which he uses to keep himself young, but hesitates while throwing a paper towel into a bin, and consequently gets killed by a radiation leak, along with the rest of the crew. But Frankenstein and her kittens survived. So that first part of the book basically takes us up to about 25 minutes into the end, uh, and the last bit of the end is kind of the first bit of this part. It's interesting, actually, we should talk about how how different the second part is in the first in the terms of the way it's structured. Uh, because the first part um, was flitting about quite a lot between different places, different times, different characters. Whereas uh, the second part, basically everything happens in kind of a chronological linear fashion other than the, the backstory of what happens right at the point of the accident but that's the only sort of backtrack you do with the rest of it is all yeah like that bit needs explaining at that point you can't wait yeah yeah there's, a, there's a maybe yeah maybe there is some linear messing about with the the timeline in that respect but it's basically it's split up into uh chunks this one uh, which is perhaps how the best way to discuss it rather than necessarily going sub chapter by sub chapter this time because yeah. basically it starts off with the rest of the end uh, starting with uh, Lister being revived by Holly and being informed that everybody's dead. It's like it's like there was a lot of energy expended on part one with new ideas and everything, and part two is almost a little bit of a rest <laughs> yeah. for Rob and Doug because there's a you're right, right. It starts with 
the part that is the, the the rest of the end, and then we've got various other episodes. And there is there is some clever melding together, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is where they pillage their uh, their treasures. Yeah, and it's um, differences are uh, are stark though in in several cases, and sometimes it's only little things. But like this bit with the everybody's dead Dave scene, having Lister's inner voice there explaining his incomprehension it makes it it makes it more about the fact that he's in shock and that he can't believe what's going on it's like the first stage of grief yeah mm. it's more about that whereas in the tv show it's him being stupid yeah. it's like they have the space here to take in part of, you know the enormity of what he just found out yeah absolutely and it's again like little details that that kind of make make the setting just feel a bit bigger a bit more interesting than you get in the tv show like the description of just how silent red dwarf is and like just the yeah. odd, like the noise of his boots on the floor, um, and Holly being projected on the floor in front of him in a kind of a huge projection, like just little details yeah. like that. You know, can't miss him. You can't miss him. Did definitely this um, watching Lister go slowly insane as a result of him, yeah. him being the only thing, yeah. that, and just kind of his way of coping with that information and just losing it. I mean, it's a terrifying idea because he's like, you are the only person on the ship other than an artificial intelligence. And I imagine that once your imagination starts to run riot, that things like saying that he runs off and tries to answer a phone that's not ringing. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty um, dark. Yeah. And things like that. Like, you would become quite paranoid and kind of quite freaky. The idea of, like, being in a, a shop when it's closed is freaky. You know, like, when it's when there's no one about. Mm. There's, but being in a ship that's five miles long. It's supposed to have 11,000 people. And the fact that actually there were, there will be cats messing around <laughs> or there is a couple of cats messing around in the cargo bay there will be noises kicking in yeah i have a long-standing phobia of um closed swimming pools <laughs> and this reminds me of that like do you mean an active swimming pool or do you mean one that's like actually empty well it could be either so like it could be you're in you're in the the swimming pool building right okay and the the, the all the water is in in the swimming pool it's perfectly still and there's just no one else there and there's just this huge body of water that's kind of in the dark uh, or it could be the where the swimming pool is supposed to be and it's empty both are equally terrifying in my mind and um, something huge that's supposed to have things happening in it yeah <laughs> yeah Going back to sort of Lister's breakdown, Dave left a comment saying that uh, Lister's breakdown is one of the key passages that sticks in his mind from the novels. It's a much more realistic reaction to his plight, albeit one that might have been a bit too heavy for a half-hour sitcom, and justifies the need for Rimmer better than the TV show ever Mm. did. And what struck me uh, when I read back was that there's a delay uh, before Rimmer gets brought back. Obviously, in the TV series, everything is condensed. And, you know, it it seems like that was Holly's plan all along, bring Lister back and then immediately bring Rimmer back. And, and in fact, I always got the impression from the TV series that Rimmer had already been alive, uh, you know, had Probably already it's... been resurrected for a little bit. Ah. Like maybe Holly, Holly brought him back first in order to brief him and, and tell him what his job was. Uh, but here, it's there's a big gap. It's only after Lister has a complete breakdown that Holly brings him back, like, to rectify that mistake. It's like he, he left it too long. He didn't think through yep. the effect that this would have on Lister. And so Rimmer being brought back at that point is him trying to rectify things. It's a phase. He'll, he'll go out of it. Oh, he's not coming out of it. <laughs> he'll be fine. Oh, he's, he's passed out. <laughs> oh, okay. I actually have quite a good point, even if I say so myself, about Lister's um, breakdown. But unfortunately... It includes a spoiler for part three, so I'll have to remember. I'll put a pin in this one. We'll mention okay. it ne- next time. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I, and and just 
like immediately getting into Holly's head as well, like in this um not Holly yeah. head, but a Holly's head. <laughs> um which is, which will end up being like some of my favorite stuff in this part, I think. Yeah. Uh, although there is a bit of Holly in this first chapter that yeah. strikes me as uh there's a series 8 style uh extending the joke where it's unnecessary in the bit where if she had survived the age difference would be insurmountable taken from the end holly follows it up with i mean you're 24 she's 3 million it takes a lot for a relationship to be that kind of age gap to work yeah we get it holly (laughs) (laughs) that's a really rare example understand she's really old and you're not (laughs) do you see because you've been in stasis for 3 million years Is this a reaction to the fact that that line didn't really get much of a reaction uh, in the TV series? <laughs> yeah, uh, they're writing that wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll get to it. Like, there's some, like, it's, this isn't just copying and pasting um, stuff from a script. There is, there are, there are parts of how this is written that directly reference how the TV show went, even how certain performances go. So, like, you know, maybe like explaining that joke a little bit more is part <laughs> is part of that and. It's really interesting because you immediately start to see what uh, what Robin Doug's favourite bits of the TV show are, like what bits they have another crack at. And yeah, you mentioned getting inside Holly's head, and um, there's loads of really good stuff that is it's really memorable in this part. Like I always think about it's a source of perturbation, and then he wondered whether there was such a word as perturbation. (laughs) I looked it up, and there is. It is a word. It means perturbed. <laughs> yeah, as you'd imagine. Everyone has that sensation of the semantic association thing when you think of a word too much and then it just like loses meaning and you're not sure if it's spelt right anymore and it's like, is this even a word anymore? It's like you can imagine Holly Mars. doing that to himself a lot. Mars bar. What is a Mars, Mars bar? Mars bar. <laughs> Mars bar. Don't you have that Danny with the word egg? No, no, no. The, the word egg just makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> case in point <laughs> you can really see in this book like when when they're adapting bits from the show which of their kind of their favorite little moments were because but just by dint of the fact that it was it was included in the book as well like what during lister's meltdown he they have the bit from balance of power where he sat in the bar having a drink and kind of you know just ruminating yeah. basically lighting the wrong end of a cigarette although in balance of power he's lighting an empty cigarette yeah. i find, find that quite interesting there's also a bit from Bounce Power where they talk about the reasons why Holly chose Rimmer, except it's a bit different. <laughs> Holly mentions doing a probability study about who who would be the best person to bring back, but then the um, stage direction, for want of a better word, the prose says, lied Holly. <laughs> Holly. Holly was just making up the fact that he'd done a probability study. He didn't actually do yeah. it. But he's he's still ch- he's still like he's clever enough to have that. Oh, you know, I need to find someone who is going to be most likely to keep him sane. Rimmer, I guess, and then yeah, it's the it, it just didn't <laughs> yeah. really think about it past that. He needs to be someone that Lister has spoken to, someone who has spoken to Lister, someone who is you know <laughs> near enough sort of rank so that you know we're not going to have a big old problem with mutiny. It's cut a long story short. It's Rimmer, so like, <laughs> it's that's basically. And it's got to it's got to have a good it's got to have a good hook for a, um you know a setup of a sitcom, you know it's odd couple <laughs> in space I'm thinking maybe porridge in space, <laughs> a bit of step toe in there, <laughs> a bit of step toe, <laughs> yeah Rim, Rimmer seems to fit. Yeah, I mean it would be I, I don't think it genuinely Red Dwarf would just be crap if it was Peterson and Lister. To be fair, it, 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 yeah, it, it wouldn't would, be that good. That would be, be wouldn't last for men behaving badly in space. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but with but with Lister dying of alcohol poisoning within three months. 
<laughs> which this book would do. I think it's dark enough. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There's that point uh, that was in the comment from Dave about how much darker this is yeah. than a like you wouldn't be able to do this in a half hour sitcom. It's, it's yeah, it's it's taking the time in, like as a luxury to go into the the connotations and the consequences of what happens that you have no choice in a half hour sitcom to brush past uh, and just go for the next joke. But here you can. You can you're allowed more breathing space between the jokes to go into these diversions, yeah. and yeah, you can have Lister have a complete mental breakdown and recover, because you know you're not confined to the time constraints of a of a half hour sitcom where exactly. you've got to just move on to the next. Scene. Yeah, where a sitcom's primary goal is to be funny as well. I mean, obviously with exceptions, but like you know, you're always thinking the the next thing this this does needs to make people laugh, whereas even in a comedy book, um, that isn't necessarily the case. You could be yeah. focusing on a particular thing. You could be focusing on drama for pages and pages and pages without having to worry about being funny at all. One more uh, thing from Holly's inner monologues in the, in the first part, which I know you've done some research into as well, Capsi. <laughs> uh, he wonders who knocked Swansea City out of the FA Cup in 1967. It's a, it's a much more interesting answer than you might expect. Uh, the short version is that it was Nuneaton Borough mm-hmm. uh, who beat them 2-0 in the second round. Although, the very interesting point is that in 1967, they weren't called Swansea City. They were called Swansea Town, because Swansea didn't become a city until a few years later. Oh, interesting. I didn't, I didn't catch that one. So maybe that's why Holly can't remember it properly, because he's searching in his database for Swansea City. Yeah. He's put it in, in quote marks. He hasn't just searched for Swansea. He's searched for Swansea City, <laughs> so he can't find it. It's like, can't find anything with Swansea City. Swan- Did you mean Swansea Town? <laughs> like Holly searches more Bing than Google. <laughs> it, it must have been pretty um, pretty disappointing for Swansea Town, because of the first round, they, they started really well. They beat Folkestone 7-2. Uh, in the first round, it was it was it was looking good, but then fucking as is always the case, Nuneaton had to spoil the party. Bloody Nuneaton Borough, bloody Nuneaton. <laughs> oh, and another small point from this section. I know we're supposed to save small points, but fuck it. Uh, <laughs> they mentioned Lolita. Uh, that's another one of Holly's things. Is he remembered yep. that uh, that there was one page in Lolita that was dirtier than the others? Except here in the book, it's page sixty, whereas in Marooned, it's page sixty-one. So maybe yeah, so this would be correct with the TV series, considering he pulled out the yeah the left hand the left hand page. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> this is a rare example of something that they're paying forward into the TV show. Like they've taken so much out, then um, you know they've got they've got to throw like a gag or two back in to be used in series three. So yeah. this is, this is <laughs> it's balanced. Well, that's the thing. Like I like a lot of people. I would have thought read the books after I'd seen all the TV that existed at that mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Uh, so it wouldn't have necessarily occurred to me that that was something that hadn't yet been on TV. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't I, like until I like really thought about it. I wasn't ever that clear whether this was pre three or post three. Um, I think it's only really this book club that's made me properly think about when it actually came mm, out. Yeah, <laughs> and and, uh, <laughs> and the um, um, ramifications. It was after series. It was after series two, but I was thinking about this as well, like the fact that this uh, the novel recycles quite a lot from the TV at this stage. Uh, anything from series one, like, would not have necessarily if you if you picked up uh, Infinity at any point before nineteen ninety four, but if you'd got into Red Dwarf after series one, 
this would be the probably the first time you'd encountered any of that stuff because series one was never repeated or released on video until ni- it was released on video in 93 it was repeated on tv in 94 so anyone yeah. that bought that got into the tv show say from series three onwards and then picked up the book uh wouldn't necessarily know that that stuff was recycled exactly and as late on as uh, two, uh 1992 as i've actually got btl1 in front of me for a later small point they were even then they were thinking about re-editing series one um or just not putting it out at all like they, even then they were reluctant to put out series one so in 89 they must have been like let's just bury it yeah <laughs> let's just do this definitive version they really hated it for yeah. So once they've established uh, that Rimmer's been brought back to keep Lister sane, then they uh, discover spoilers, they discover the cat. Uh, but it, it plays out in a really, like, in the TV series, again, uh, for brevity, the cat just appears at the doorway. Is like, the cat yeah. comes and finds them by accident. And whereas, don't think about it too much. Yeah. Whereas here it's like, uh, Holly's, Holly's detected an unhuman life before and they have to go and check it out. And that there's a really atmospheric thing where they go down to the cargo decks in the in the it really feels like polymorph. Yeah, they're being polymorph where they go and hunt mm. down the polymorph. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, they clearly like as a tone piece, just taking that verbatim. It's another one of those scenes that I really would have loved to have seen in a film. Only Back to Earth seems to have done the sort of scale of the ship any justice. I mean, obviously the model shots are like one thing, but the internal scale is something that's really difficult to get your head around but i think back to earth is the closest you're going to get to seeing an actual proper scale of how big the damn thing is yeah that's an interesting point back to earth doesn't really get a credit it deserves for that no like they, they really went hard didn't they and mm. like the, the space of it like you know how much it's quite difficult there, to get yeah. right and they got it right but yeah like i said the 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 whole thing about the the cat settlements and the you know the little houses and yeah. just make the fucking movie already come on I'll make it into a series. Make infinite into a series. Just do that. And then I can die happy. <laughs> yeah, it also establishes at this early stage that Cat has seen the Flintstones. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then I I really love is my probably my favourite chapter in the whole book is uh sub chapter six in here, where it is one of those uh rare bits that you mentioned, Danny, where it's um it's going back and filling in the gaps. So it's after they've discovered the cat for the first time. This goes and then explains, you know, where he came from, mm-hmm. what happened during the accident, and it's it it alternates within one chapter between Holly's inner voice and you know sort of Holly's POV, the things that happened to him during the three million years, and meanwhile what was happening down in the cargo decks, and whenever it's uh, the stuff about the cats, it's in a sort of biblical style verse. Yeah, it's like those short sentences and the repeated words. It's so. It's like a deliberate pastiche of the Bible. Yeah. But the fact that they, they cut between doing that and also Holly's bits, which are more sort of conventional. It's just, yeah, it's really clever. It's really good. Yeah, that's a, a few people in the comments kind of highlighted that as part of like those the two chapters, I guess, of seeing the cat and then all the backstory stuff had been basically the highlight of the whole book. <laughs> um, and it's exactly yeah. the sort of job that the book should be doing of, of this backfilling of information. I do and like again, the, uh, just more. The, sorry, no. no, sorry, mate. I was just going to say about the because it was mentioning like where the the moment that the like the actual cadmium two. It's like like fifteen nanoseconds to do something. It's like literally that's how fast that the ship was rocked by this thing. It's like no one had a chance to even you know, like Rimmer wouldn't you know he had a very thin amount of time to get into that stasis booth. It's like he probably wouldn't have made it anyway. 
it probably would have yeah, killed him regardless. So 15 immediate. nanoseconds isn't enough to make a single mistake. Um, yeah. But like the the fact that like Hollywood's like bored of like seeing like triple sun systems and like stuff that had never <laughs> been seen before, and it's like mm. it's all kind of like yeah, another one. Brilliant. The king is bored shitless of impossible things. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just, I just like that kind of the, like the like said the internal thing of of what Holly did the second that the the cadmium two kind of rocked through the ship. Yeah, um, and I don't think because he didn't even know about the cats. That wasn't his intention. wasn't to to keep the cats safe. It was just a, a byproduct, wasn't it? It wasn't even. Yeah, he just sealed the cargo bays for later. He sealed off as much of the ship as possible. Mm. Yeah. It does suggest that Lister. So I always thought like part of Lister's plan of of frankenstein being in the cargo hold is that he assumes it's already sealed off or it would already be you know like a safe environment but it's like in this part holly has to actually react and seal it like you'd think it would be a sealed system anyway i think it's more the fact that you wouldn't find it well, yeah, yeah it's more true. that it's a safe hiding place yeah he wasn't that, expecting you know, holly, it doesn't too. it doesn't get monitored i think yeah, yeah because yeah. the ship is empty holly can find the cat easier but with a, a crew of you know, one thousand people around the cargo bay, a cat isn't going to be found. But yeah, when the cat it. is the only thing other than Lister, it's going to get found. Yeah, I do like the detail of that. When when Frankenstein died at the ripe old age of fourteen, which actually <laughs> isn't that old for a cat, but um, these days. it's decent. It's decent. It's a good. It's a good innings. I mean, to have just like a hundred thousand babies. <laughs> Actually, no, she didn't. Sorry. No, she didn't have 100,000 babies. She... 100,000 descendants. She'd already, like, basically, by the end of her life, this is how fast the generations happen with cats, already by the end of her life, she, she'd probably started the, the process of a whole new genus, you know? Like, it's really as, cool. As yeah. we found out to our cost, Capsi, that cats can um, have babies and get into heat at a very, very fucking young age. <laughs> yes. As we discovered when we took in a uh, an abandoned cat that we thought was just a kitten, but was in fact the mother of all the kittens that she was found with, <laughs> and then proceeded to uh, try and fuck our other cat. Which which actually <laughs> ruined their relationship for actual forever. years. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. maybe forever, yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah. So that's what happened to Frankenstein as well. <laughs> yeah, I've got it. Must have been an absolute fuck fest. Jesus. Yeah. But meanwhile, uh, that that this uh, section also contains one of the most sort of notorious changes between the original version of Infinity and the Omnibus edition, uh, which we haven't really spoken about yet. But yeah, the in '93, I think it was uh, the first two books got republished in an Omnibus edition, and there were just a handful of little changes. Um, between the the two versions of Infinity, I think I'm right in saying Better Than Life is pretty much untouched because Better Than Life was pretty Brand fresh new. at that point. Um, but yeah, the key one is that in this, as is the case in the TV series, uh, Holly says that the worst book ever written is uh, Football. It's a funny old game by Kevin Keegan, uh, and whereas in the Omnibus, uh, Kevin Keegan's name is changed to Joe Clump, which is a fictional zero. It's turned into zero G football. It's a funny old game. Yeah. And uh, it has Joe Clump, is a, who is a, a fictional zero-G football uh, personality. Yeah. Which isn't as good. <laughs> it's like they were concerned... The reason they changed it was because they were concerned about having, you know, topical, real-life references. But as it turned out, Kevin Keegan made enough of an impact after uh, this... Probably after the Omnibus was written as a manager 
in addition to because uh, he was already like remembered as a great player at this point. But he did he, like he didn't achieve much as a manager in terms of trophies, but in terms of his Visibility. impact impact on the culture of football yeah. massively. Uh, because you know, ninety five, ninety six season when he was manager of Newcastle, and they blew a lead at the top of the table. I would uh, love it. I would love it if we beat them. I would love it. Uh, then went on to be the England manager and was shit at that. So yeah, Kevin Keegan is definitely going to be a name that's remembered for years to come. And also, it's a it's a character thing with Holly. I think I've been th- thinking about this because Holly is like Holly's described in part one as you know he's got he's a middle aged East Londoner, um, yeah. you know, balding. Um, and the, the 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 way that they portray him, the way he's built, is almost like kind of a guy that would just twitter on about football down the pub endlessly. Yeah, like you know the the it's a load of Tottenham that is it's a steaming pile of Hotspurs. Like <laughs> specifically talking about football is what Holly's character feels like he'd do. So so it being like zero G is just that that's not part of Holly's world. That's part of Lister's world. Holly's about yeah. football, about things that are more rooted in our time. Yeah, yeah. Holly definitely feels more like a product of the 20th century than yeah. any of the other characters ever did. Which is weird because he's a, he's yeah. a super advanced AI computer. Well, he's the sum of all human um, knowledge, you know. He's, and that he's defaults. Timeless. Yeah, and that defaults. <laughs> that, de- that defaults back to he's averaged an, out. a middle-aged white man from yeah. the 20th century. He's probably an Arsenal fan, considering using to- uh, Tottenham as a. Pro- um, Although he said East, L- it's East London in the uh, uh, that he's described as. So he might be West Ham. Is Netta Musket a real person, or is that been because it was? I was mentioning Agatha Christie. Is Netta Musket a real person? Uh, yes, uh, it's kind of a more obscure equivalent of Agatha Christie. I had to look her up as well. It sounds like she's made up. There's a real author, just yeah. well, evidently not as well known as Agatha Christie. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's an odd change because that is a change. It doesn't change the fact that it's a real world reference, but it makes it less likely to be recognised. That's uh, strange. I wanted to ask, Danny, you have an edition of the Omnibus in front of you. I, I do. Believe. Page one hundred and twenty-one of Infinity, Page which is the start of this uh, chapter six that we're discussing, is the Kevin Keegan bit. I wanted to check what the uh, equivalent of this line is. Go on. Uh, so after he mentions uh, football, it's a funny old game, uh, Holly came to two conclusions. Given the whole sphere of human knowledge, it was still impossible to determine the existence or not of God. And second, Kevin Keegan should have stuck to getting his hair permed. What's the equivalent for Joe so, Clump? It's still the same, but the audiobook has something different, and I can't remember what it is. But it's interesting, because the omnibus still has... Se- and second, Joe Clump should have stuck to having his hair permed, but the audiobook has a different line for that. I remember that that being different when I was reading it. Oh my god, the thick plottons. Play it in, now. Holly came to two conclusions. First, given the whole sphere of human knowledge, it was still impossible to determine the existence or not of God. And second... Joe Clump should never have been allowed anywhere near a ghostwriter. Ah, thank you, Chris. That's okay. what it is in the audiobook. How interesting. Imagine we've just discussed whatever that is. Let's put that to bed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I guess this, this section, uh, as you could call it, ends um, with the following chapter, uh, where we kind of we get to the end of the end, uh, which is 127 pages in <laughs> we've got to the end of episode one basically <laughs> which is nearly halfway the through things the book. pick up a bit after this point <laughs> yeah the pace changes a lot things get a little bit confusing <laughs> i noticed there's we don't have the uh the slimes coming home 
line equivalent, but it does kind of reach the same thing of like, let's get back to Earth. They established that that is the uh, that's the plan. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was sort of like listed just like right. Well, we're three million years away. Oh, fuck it, let's just turn back. We've got nothing else to do. Let's just let's just go back the way we came. But Holly has no idea how. But Ollie doesn't want to doesn't want to admit it either. He's just kind of it's like I know where I'm going. But like so the thing in Queeg, it's like that starts to actually make sense that actually he didn't know where he was going and he was going around in circles and it's like that could well have been possible. Yeah, just the just the reveal that just you know you, you implicitly trust this computer to say, oh yeah, we'll be heading directly out of the solar system for three million years. But actually, that might not be true. They might have had a slightly you know circular route and be rammed the other side of the solar system. Or something who knows yeah um but i i love being in his head when when they're like breaking the light barrier it's like yeah i was gonna say you get the exposition through the inner monologue but rather than holly having to come up and explain everything bit by bit which you need to do in tv yeah which he does a lot you can do you can make that uh that sort of laying of the pipe for setting up future echoes it's a lot more entertaining when you can take like three pages to to spread it out mixed in with loads of gags about what's going through his head when it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, we then go into this whole section which is basically future echoes. It all happens slightly differently like some of the scenes are run into each other, some scenes are sort of melded together, others are, are separated out. But everything that happens is kind of what happens in the TV series and in kind of the same order. Uh, it's just like some of the locations are different and that reminds me of um the comic book adaptations of uh the end of future echoes which were in the early editions of the magazines before they started doing original stuff where again they just transposed the dialogue directly from the tv scripts but you know some scenes took place on uh on red dwarf's tube yeah. network and some scenes took place in these huge locations that we've never seen before or since and there's a lot more dynamism and the characters walking and talking and stuff like that and that's definitely the impression you get from the books as well we're exploring the whole of red dwarf whilst dialogue takes place that in the tv series happens in one of three rooms yeah exactly and it must be it must be so easy like when when you're adapting something from a tv show to just keep those locations in there and kind of forgetting the power that you've got when when you're writing a book so it's it's yeah. uh, but it does also it has the side effect of giving it a bit of an uncanny valley feeling like if you've watched, seen the tv series before reading the book which i would imagine the majority of people had and and you read a, a verbatim scene that's exactly as the tv show but it's in the it's in a tube train and not in the bunk room and you kind of just got to think well they've just changed the location like what's this you know you know it's it all fits together. All things will fit together nicely in the end, but sometimes it does run in the risk of just feeling like they've just had to fill in three pages, so they've copied and pasted a scene. Yeah, and when you've got when you've got the TV version so firmly lodged in your memory, yeah, it's kind of it's fighting that. The small changes are kind of distracting sometimes, but if not, then it's just you. You just think, oh yeah, this was. This was really good. It doesn't quite come across in the same way. It can never be as funny in prose when you don't have... Um, like ba- basically, the original bits of, of prose are always going to be funnier than yeah. something that's uh, that's based on the TV version because so much is added with you know, the performances and the audience. I've got a couple of things I wanted to mention about the... the it's the, There's two things. The... the 
Chris's impression of Tony Hawks as the dispensing machine on the audiobooks is a fucking joy to it <laughs> That was one thing. I actually did check this as well, because I'm an audio nerd. I was wondering whether when Rimmer was talking to the other lister before the Future Echo kicked in, I was wondering whether they'd use the same audio as hmm. the as the repeated bit. They didn't. He just read. He just read. He it just read it. Okay. But it's just kind of like, like, mm, well, you missed the trick because that'd have been quite good if they did that. <laughs> but I like the way you know. Conversely to what I was mentioning before, I'm going to contradict my previous point now. But I liked the way that in the double rimmer scene, uh, the even the uh, the prose bits, the non-dialogue bits, matched directly. Yeah, so it was like he rubbed the hit on his forehead with a finger and then... Yeah, so the exact wording there. Yeah, even the uh, the descriptions are repeated verbatim as well as the dialogue. And there's, there's a similar thing that happens later on, but I'll, uh, we'll get to that. It's interesting because mm. I, can't, I can't really figure out... When I was reading the, you know, that like really famous scene, like it's one of my all-time favourite Red Dwarf scenes, the double conversation... And I was reading it in the in book form, and I was like, it was reminding me that God, this is identical to the TV show. And I was like, does this does this actually work in a book or not? And I I, I honestly can't figure it out because I'm tainted. <laughs> I've never read it fresh without any experience of the uh, of the TV version. I'm not entirely convinced that plays in a book. I think I'm going to go on a limb and say yes, it does. Because I distinctly remember I hadn't seen the first series of Red Dwarf. I read the audiobooks Ooh. before I'd seen Future Records. I said right. read the audiobook. I listened to the audiobooks before um, uh, seeing Future Records, at least seeing it yeah. enough to, to remember the lines in the show. So it was a case of when I heard the audiobook, it made total sense. Right. So, yeah, I think it does It does still work. I mean, it's it's fucking genius writing, to be honest with you. Hats off to, to, to Rob yeah. and Doug for doing that. I mean, it's, 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 they're very good at that. They're very good at the whole sort of um, bootstrap paradox kind of thing, you know, where... And not dwelling on it too much. Yeah, just not making it over... Like, not making it over complicated, but getting it sort of so that it makes sense for the story and that's as much as it needs to work, and then it, that's it, done. Yeah. I, I think... One thing that is clearer in the book is that when uh, Lister tries to save the cat from breaking his tooth, the fact that him doing that actually breaks it is yeah. a lot clearer in the book than it is in the TV series, yes. where you don't see you don't see cat make you know you don't see cat smacking his mouth or anything. You don't see any kind of impact. He just stands up and then suddenly realizes his his tooth's gone. You do hear a tiny crack in the in the show. Really, you do hear like a, a sound effect, but it's lost underneath the kind of sc- the scrabble yeah. across the. And you're never yeah. entirely sure whether he's still trying to bite down on the sandwich mid wrestle, yeah. which he might have been. You know, one thing that actually did. Um, come to me it, 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 I've, I've written down a note says on episode 542 of Dan realises he's overthought something again um, <laughs> it only occurred to me on reading the book that the two events are not supposed to be causally related I always assumed with the future echoes thing that if Lister stopped the cat from breaking his tooth then he would not die like that would just be causally related but what I like it would sort of fork the timeline if you will but what I realised mm. it's all like I, and, and maybe this is obvious to everyone else but it just wasn't to me that it was just a test so yeah, like, it's if a I can stop that thing from happening, I can also stop this thing from happening. But I like I can cheat. Yeah, I can, I can, I can, if I stop this from that, yeah, I can redirect it exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah, and and I guess that's why it's more effective that uh, it's clearer. You know, Lister's actions are what caused the cat to break his tooth. It makes it clearer that you can't escape the future echoes because your actions are going to cause them to happen. Mm-hmm. If they if they weren't going to happen already, there's nothing that Lister can do. He can try his best, but it's still going to end up the same way. But it's like that was what was going to happen anyway. Yeah, like it was it always. It he was always never, it was, wasn't him stopping. It was the fact that he was trying to stop himself from doing it that made it happen in the first place. And that should teach him a lesson that you can't jump to conclusions about cause and effect. Yeah, he saw the he saw the cat had lost his tooth, and he made the assumption that it was biting the robot goldfish that did it, whereas in fact it was him. Yeah, and like then later on, obviously Rimmer sees Lister die, or at least he thinks he sees Lister die, and so they act based on that. Uh, whereas they shouldn't. The conversation with the uh, with Rimmer like baiting Lister about what he saw is a lot more graphic in this one. Yeah, it's a lot yeah. funnier. Cause, what's that name of the organ that's like a big boomerang? Well, that went over there. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Rob Grant. It's very Rob Grant. <laughs> oh, there was a comment about this in the actual explosion scene as well. Still in on ideas. Uh, says so there's a few additions that amuse him. Uh, the mention of Lister's arm coming off. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. flies across the room. <laughs> Does that tie into the um, the thing about the robot hand in the the future one as well? Or is that that's what? Yeah. yeah. When I read that, I thought, is that a bit of foreshadowing? So that when later on, when Lister sees himself with a false arm, yeah, he might think, oh, I'm still going to lose an arm at some point. But yeah. that old Lister is the one that breaks the news to him that it wasn't him. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but it's weird that you think like that. That's two massive coincidences. He's, like Rimmer just so happens to see Lister's grandson die in the exact same location, wearing the exact same clothes as he happens to be wearing that day, and he so happens to need to go to that location to fix the Navi computer. It is. It, yeah. it is a weird coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> and that the fixing of the fixing of the computer. That whole scene is so much more dramatic yeah. than in book form that you could ever hope to be on TV. It's just like the tension yeah. that it gives you of the, the countdown and the the clicks and the noises that it's making and yeah, it's hard to separate the two things in your mind. Like we talked about last time that, you know, I always assume in the T V series that the Monopoly board thing happened and that being on Mimus happened. And so therefore when I watch the scene from Future Echoes, I have this version of it in my head yeah. so it's kind of there in the performance that when he flicks the last switch he knows that shit this is the switch this like yeah. that amount of choices now is definitely going to happen this time yeah. to have that spelt out and, it, and elaborated on in the book is a huge bonus yeah. then he does the touch up shuffle right <laughs> which is a, a thing that's mentioned and I assume it's a zero G football related thing because like a touch up it must be the equivalent of a touch down in, in normal <laughs> <Christ's> <laughs> football, <laughs> You'd American think. football <laughs> And it's described in the book as uh, his feet rooted to the spot. He swayed from his waist and moved his arms in counter motion. That's the floss. That's the dance move from Fortnite. Grant Naylor invented the floss. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Is they it from Fortnite? That like, nothing's from Fortnite, right? Uh, they, they, they're popularized. <laughs> yeah. popularized by Fortnite. <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, it, it hasn't quite described like the complicated crisscross motion. <laughs> I guess crisscross will make you jump, jump. <laughs> so a few. Other bits from uh, the Future Echoes section, I guess. Uh, we mentioned the dispenser machine with uh, the amusing Tony Hawk's impression. But what's different in the dispenser machine scene, A, it's moved further along in the narrative. Yeah. Because uh, it opens Future Echoes in the in the TV series, but mm. it's, it's in the middle of it in the book. But it also, it 
gets rid of the speech impediment jokes. Uh, you know, this has been mal- this list malfunction and all that. Yeah. Um, it's just the joke here is just that he keeps ordering things and uh, getting them wrong. And I think it's actually better for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's more focused. It's like from a kind of lefty liberal social justice point of view. <laughs> it's you know you mocking someone or something for having a speech impediment and making the fact that he has a lisp on the same level as he delivers a, a flaming Christmas pudding instead of a coffee. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 like, it's good to have those two things separated out and, and to not say that if you if you have a minor speech impediment, then you're a complete waste of time. I, I don't know why you have to analyse everything through the lens of cultural Marxism, Ian. I know, I keep doing that. <laughs> this was something I was going to actually put in small points, but since you mentioned the fact that they removed kind of that... <clears throat> I guess ableism in a <laughs> quite a mild yeah, way. Very mild ableism. Uh, yeah, very, very mild ableism. Let's not go over this. This isn't, this isn't time wave. I mean, my son's got a lisp and I, I rip the piss out of him for it. Um, <laughs> but the, they, they needed to kind of drop that just to make room for a few more bits of casual xenophobia. Because at this point in the book, <laughs> we've had Germans uh, with the classic... Um, it's like being on holiday with a group of Germans. We've had mm. the French, John, John Paul Sartre, and the Italians and their driving. So we're, we're really like <coughs> we're really hitting all of the 80s slash 90s. Um, so um, look out further on for the Turks and the Welsh. They, they will complete the uh, the five. We had the, the Spanish in part one as well. Oh yeah, of course. Like, yeah, you cross off your xenophobia bingo card. <laughs> So they were ahead of their time with predicting mid 2010s culture in terms of the floss. They predicted Brexit as well. <laughs> Euroscepticism. <laughs> fuck off every single person. I mean, it's, it's low hanging fruit, isn't it, for that kind of era where it was just like, oh, it's it's funny to talk about, you know, a two Italian priests and a Skoda kind of thing. It's, it was yeah, harmless yeah. It, like at the time. Making jokes about our European cousins seemed quite harmless. It's like Frank Skinner always talks about. Uh, in comedy who's in the chair so like again this you know is probably subject matter that's perhaps a bit old-fashioned if you need a joke about a handsome man uh like brad pitt is in the handsome chair or, yeah, right. or, or like brad pitt was in the handsome chair now it's like tom hardy's in the handsome chair or idris elba's in the handsome chair mm. uh and so for a long time if you just wanted a, a joke about uh, bad driving. The Italians were in the bad driving chair. Yes. Or if you needed a, a joke about being arrogant, the French were in the arrogant chair. Mm. Uh, I tell you what. One thing we haven't mentioned is that brilliant, brilliant scene uh, of Lister, sort of contemplating his fate, uh, <laughs> and the, how many men could say that is such a powerful <laughs> segment. Yes, and like, the way that it breaks down is like he, he starts listing through his actual achievements, you know, such as they are in life, and it just ends with Lister was drunk. How many men could say that? Lister sat down. How many men could say that? <laughs> yeah, that was great. But it also like everything about the it, it gives a lot of backstory to Lister in this in this bit as well, where he's sort of thinking back on his life and everything that he's done, and it really establishes him as he's not an idiot. Uh, which, you know, in this early stage of the TV series, he was written largely as an idiot. And we've talked about the fact that already uh, from the first part of the book, the fact that his plan with Frankenstein is deliberate, mm. marks him out as a lot smarter than the guy that asks what an iguana is in the end. Yeah. Uh, and in this sense as well, it's, it's saying he's not just an idiot that's, you know, that, that is 
that's ended up like this because he's just a complete cretin. He's just he's a very intelligent man. He just can't be asked. He's an underachiever. Mm. As that whole thing about when he was working in the in Sainsbury's, uh, <clears throat> and he could have. Uh, knuckled down and quite easily become the manager. He's far more intelligent than the manager, than the actual manager is. But he just he couldn't be bothered with that kind of life, and so he was just drifting through. Mm. And that fa- sets up so much for later in the book as yeah. well, which we'll come to. I find that bit a bit unrealistic, actually, with the with the <laughs> supermarket, because in my experience working at a supermarket before I figured out what I wanted to do, um the managers weren't saying in five years' time you could be a manager. They were all fucking gatekeeping it. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I, when I thought I was, uh, you know, I may as well, you know, I, I may as well carry on here and I inquired about, you know, how would you be? And I, you know, uh, starting for a line manager, they basically got laughed at. It's yeah, like, just <laughs> dead man's boots, you know. Fuck you. It did, yeah, it's definitely, I worked in a supermarket as well and there's definitely a cliqueiness about oh, management yeah. versus grunts like us yeah and who could aspire to be a fucking manager oh my god but there we go we've come to the same conclusion as lister then it's like yeah yeah, you could do it fucking hell what's the the point i think that was that and with lister as well it's not even that he's stupid it's just that he's made bad decisions or he's made his decisions have just led him further and further away from what he planned to do and it's just usually just him eking his way through yeah and everyone's got those everyone's got those in their life everyone's got those decisions that haunt them i'm fucking moving in with ian Jesus, why? <laughs> why? Why? No. <laughs> then the big thing, the big, big difference uh, between TV and book is the identity of the person that dies. Yeah. Still, you know, Nanides, um again pointed out it's a sensible decision to make it list his grandson. And uh, he quotes a, a Rob Grant interview uh, where he says, this is Rob Grant, uh, quote, it's not really a great resolution that your son dies. Frankly, it's not something to be punching the air and doing a toe shuffle about, is it? Uh, let's face it, so we tried to remove it as far as possible in the books, but even so, it's not very satisfactory. Yeah, He doesn't do the tuk-tuk shuffle once he realises it's his son that died. He does that before he realises. That's the difference. But I think it, it's like in the TV series, he's like Lister says, Rimmer points out, yeah, but your son dies. And Lister says, yeah, but everyone dies. You're born, you die. Yeah. In the book, yeah. as well as the fact that it's his grandson and so it's a further generation removed, it's old Lister that says that. Yeah. And it's yes. like the kind of the benefit of his years. It's it's not Lister, the, you know, our Lister downplaying yeah. the situation. It's the one that's gone through that loss has said yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. He's come through the other side yeah. and come to terms with it. He's still more gutted here about his grandson than he is in the TV about his son. Yeah. It's like he he slumps down and it's like oh he does have to process that information and it's yeah like I say it's the old Lister that sort of snaps him out of it processing that he has the son and the grandson yeah and the grandson and, and, and then he loses that in his twenties yeah. yeah and also uh, on the way to uh, that future Echo encounter uh, they ride on the Central Line yeah <laughs> so, we had the Northern as, Line yeah the Northern Line last time <laughs> now that Red Dwarf has a Central Line <laughs> and also. Lister notices on old Lister uh, that he has a tattoo, or what he thinks is a tattoo, that says U equals B-I-L. What does it mean? What does that mean? There's some foreshadowing there, perhaps. Like We're talking as if everyone hasn't already read <laughs> yeah. the whole book. But, you yeah. know. Do let us know if you're actually reading this for the first time, because if you're not, maybe we... This might be like a similar sort of 
Dave Pace and UK TV play pace situation where we soon realised during the coverage of Series 11 that we were catering for literally no one by avoiding spoilers. Yeah. What this does is helps us focus on what we're talking about and not start fucking talking about part three for half an hour, which we yeah. would have done by now, I think, if which we weren't. I yeah. can't do because I haven't read it and I can't remember what's happened in it. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it'll be very vague and very shit. I think I think they all they all get back to Earth and it's basically fine. I think as far as I remember. Yeah, yeah. So then the the future echoes section ends as does the T V episode with one final echo of uh of a youngish lister holding the two babies and it goes from and this is something that um i spotted as i was reading but pete part three pointed out in a comment uh lister and rimmer ponder how the babies can be born without a woman around and then it cuts to the next chapter starts with meeting captain yvette richards on the nova five and that like obviously we now know how the how the Nova Five stuff pans out, but if you're reading that book for the first time and you're not familiar with the Nova Five or you know who <laughs> yeah. these people are, that's a that's a brilliant red herring piece of misdirection. It's like we need a woman. Cut to here's a woman. Here's, ah. here's multiple women. The Nova Five section, like this, is the episode Crichton basically, and a, and a bit later on, it ends up being more you know here's stuff that's direct from the TV series because you've got you got you know you've even got the Esperanto uh, sequence of, of and that plays out exactly how it does on TV and you've got the dog's milk and you've got the cat yeah. dressing up and, and everything yeah. else. But it starts off with really going to town on Crichton and, you know, life on board the Nova 5 and it gets into Crichton's head, you know, almost straight away. There's been an interesting discussion on the comments thread about Crichton and I guess now's as good a time as any to address it as a which Crichton... A, which Crichton do you read it as... Mm. Oh, you read as at different points in the different books, but also what Crichton were Rob and Doug thinking about at the time they were writing this book? Yeah. And how prior to series three was it? <laughs> Which is We know that the book was definitely it was written and published in between two and three. Was it written in between two and three? Or was it written a lot maybe they'd been writing it over the course of well, mm. no, no, you probably right because there is. But there's there's so much stuff from series two in it that it has to be written after series two. Yeah, no, mm. very true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we don't know precisely, like to the month yeah. <laughs> or to the or to the week, when they were writing this, when they were writing series three, yeah. and at what stage they were at the casting of series three. Having you know, had they did they know at this stage whether that they didn't have David Ross, and if so, had they already cast Robert Llewellyn? How far along in developing? Crichton's character were they because as we know in series 3 Roberts uh, doesn't nail Crichton straight away no they were still it's, having it's debates about more. his voice you know yeah and like that the deleted scene from uh, Body Swap which was you know the first thing Robert ever performed where he got electrocuted and he got edited out anyway yeah where he's just doing a David Ross voice so I think at this stage it's written for the David Ross Crichton. I think that's how I I read it that way as well. Like it was later in the in the book that I sort of made this note, but it makes more sense here. It just says Crichton is a very different character in the books here. He hasn't broken his program. He's not allowing himself to be responsible with anything that his superiors should be responsible for. He's yeah. very much the David Ross Crichton, not the Robert Llewellyn Crichton. But the audio book makes that muddy because yes. Chris reads David Ross's lines in Robert Llewellyn's accent and I find that really incongruous and it's not that it's wrong obviously it's not wrong it's a character but it's just there's something about it that just feels weird for Robert Llewellyn's version of Crichton to be that way <laughs> strange there's there's two things about it one is that the bits that are lifted directly from the episode you can't help but hear mm-hmm. in 
in David Ross's voice because mm. we're so familiar with it, we can't help but hear it. But also, he is written like he has those little oh, Mister David, and like oh, it, it's Go it's not fucking out, <laughs> fucking out. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. And the hang-ups about well, this is this is human work. This is you know, this is not mechanical yeah. business. I'm not supposed to know this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, Robert Crichton does do a bit of that, but not much. This was this was one of the things I had in mind uh, for David Ross style dialogue. Thank goodness, thank goodness, bless you, Crichton clasped his hands together. We were beginning to despair. That is, yeah. you can't read that in Robert Llewellyn's, like, obviously Chris did for the book, for the audio book. But it sounds weird, it sounds strange. Like That, that dialogue kind of... is clearly David Ross. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think because of the audio book, I think, I mean, you could perhaps say that maybe when, we're skipping ahead a bit, but when Lister fixes Crichton, uh, maybe that's when his voice changes. That'd maybe be because, as indeed it is in the TV series, it's yeah. just that it happens in a far shorter space of time. So, like, um, I mean, we might as well we might as well go for it and and come back to other bits. But basically, when that scene plays out of "Oh my God, I was only away two minutes," Crichton's reaction, like in the TV series, is obviously devastated and is all, "Oh, what am I going to do?" In this, he commit suicide immediately he immediately uh, yeah. takes off his head dismantles it locates his shutdown chip and, and shuts himself down permanently so yeah that's, that's a bit of a difference in the reaction yeah it basically means that you don't have to do the episode Crichton and then end with him rebelling and then have him just crash into a moon or whatever you know you you, you have the reason for him to be shut down and then rebuilt immediately I think it it, it works really well so it's clear that Robin Doug had decided that Crichton was a regular character then, mm. because otherwise they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't bother with this whole section if yeah. Crichton wasn't supposed to be around. Yeah, you know, if if they still had in mind that Crichton was a one-off guest character as he was when he was originally written for the episode Crichton, why would you necessarily bring this bit into the book? It's only it's only to keep Crichton around as a regular. So they clearly made that decision, and they just they tweaked the way it worked so that they could make him a regular quicker. But they hadn't yet got to the point where the, you know, the plot for Red Dwarf USA, which was you know, a reimagining of the Red Dwarf origin story in the same way the book was, uh, where Crichton was just aboard Red Dwarf in the yeah. first place. Mm. He was transferred or something, wasn't he? Yeah, it starts off with... It's kind of, in Red Dwarf USA, Crichton is kind of the, the everyman character, more yeah, so than Lister is, because turns he turns up, up yeah. as like, oh, I'm on this new ship, what's going on here? And Lister teaches him about the ship. Odd. Anyway, we'll save that for a later book. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there any sort of major differences with the with the Crichton bit other than the the fleshing out in general? Um, obviously, apart from natural before the accident, I suppose that's the biggest part. The fact that Crichton causes the accident, yeah, was was a major change. It's now the fact that he has such a a, a lethal defect. Yeah, is actually it's weird that it just suddenly like it's not really explained why all of a sudden he decided that well apart from the fact that you know they're celebrating so he's giving it all the computers a treat by cleaning yeah. them <laughs> it's like surely like the series four thousands you know there'd be ships crashing all over the place because they've gone mental and decided to shampoo <laughs> maybe that is the case navigation computer <laughs> and maybe maybe Crichton was already a bit broken yeah maybe maybe it's it, just may, it makes him, him yeah. Yeah, the recall had been called, but no one knew about it. At this stage, that was a a, a new development. Like we didn't, it, 
in the episode Crichton, there's nothing about why the Nova Five crash. What happened to it is just that that's you know that's the status quo. Yeah. It's mm. a crashed spaceship. But the fact that Crichton actually caused the accident was made canon uh, in the TV series in Aroboros. Yeah, uh, yeah, where he's talking about he was left on his own before on the Nova Five, but you killed the crew, crates. Yeah, but ta- I mean, time killed the last three of the crew. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, it, despite yeah, Crichton's yeah. best efforts. Despite his best efforts, yeah. I wasn't clear at first when I was sort of reading through, but it does make clear when you later you learn about the duality jump drive and how the Nova Five travels. Like how they got to be three million years out into deep space, yes. but you know they were jumping around, and it took them a few months to get to the point. But yeah, they were basically duality jumping their way around. So they are they are from Couple sort of not yeah a few hundred you know maybe even a, a few thousand years into Lister's future, but they have been crashed on that rock for a million years at least. It says two million later on. Yeah. Two million years, yeah. I mean that also explains Trojan as well, if with the. Um... The ship that all of a sudden is like all of a sudden populated. It's like, well, they probably used the various because we talk about quantum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, so that that same idea of things being able to appear. If, yeah, if only there was a little bit more effort put towards using the same ideas um, <laughs> with the same names <laughs> rather than the same ideas with completely different names. And anyway, <laughs> yeah, and of course the the mission as well of of the Nova Five being revealed. Yeah, Cocad's life. Cocad's life. Yeah. Um, Stilly Maddies calls it an attempt at biting satire, but I actually think it's an incredibly prescient and realistic thing. <laughs> in, in, in the, not so much as you know, exploding stars, but that pervasiveness of advertising, hundred percent, born out of the next thirty years. I have in front of me an article from the Independent, dated Tuesday, the sixteenth of April, two thousand and nineteen, which has just been obscured by a fucking advert. <laughs> Is there this the article go. about the moon? No, this is uh, soft drinks giant PepsiCo has consulted with a Russian space startup offering brands the chance to project their logos into the night skies via low orbit satellites. Yeah. Oh, that was it. Uh, it will use an array of micro satellites to project companies' logos into low Earth orbit with images on its website showing how images might appear floating across the sky. <laughs> so basically a much more environmentally friendly but still quite <laughs> invasive version of yeah. making a series of stars go supernova to spell out Kokad's life. Yeah, wasn't this this plot was uh, originally in Hitchhikers, wasn't it? Wasn't there originally there was a mention of this in the um, in the Blackadder um, thing where these uh, the original idea of these businessmen trying to create advertisements in the sky. Ah, uh, yes, and it's uh, and it, it was Douglas Adams like had that idea originally, and then it eventually ended up into Infinity. But it was originally something that like the Hitchhikers had talked never about. So that. there has been some cross pollination somewhere between. So it was an idea uh, for Hitchhikers that never got used. I'm going to have to go find the, the citation there and then go get it. Something that John Lloyd and Douglas Adams originally put together with the, um, called Snow 7 and the White Dwarves. The sci-fi sitcom pilot concerned a couple of astrophysicists in the observatory from the top of Mount Everest who discovered that an intergalactic advertising agency aimed to write a slogan across the galaxy in supernovae. Things go better with Bulp, with Earth selected as the full stop. <laughs> So this is where the sort of hitchhikers <laughs> and the dwarf kind of like intermingle into two things. Uh, the space organ was an idea which would eventually be used by Rob Grant and Doug Neal in their dwarf novels. So yeah, so there has been some so, there's, there's some ideas that have been kind of passed around. I wonder if there's like a direct thing of because like John Lloyd uh, was the producer of Spitting Image, was he not? Um, when Rob and Doug were uh, on it, so that like I believe so. 
they've worked with John Lloyd, they know John Lloyd. Mm. So I wonder if that was like a thing of like, oh, you're writing a sci-fi sitcom. Me and Douglas had this idea ages ago and like, oh, can we have that? <laughs> or whether it's just a coincidence that they both independently came up with a similar thing. There is a lot that is directly uh, lifted from Crichton and that's mainly the stuff with like what our main crew are up to. It sort of cuts between that um, those scenes from the episode and extra bits aboard the Nova 5, uh, really. And there's there's one bit that I, it struck me. There's a few of these that pop up during this part of the book. Uh, subchapter 15 of this, um, which is where... It's basically the scene where Rimmer's trying to revise Esperanto. Then Holly comes on and tells them that he's picked up a distress call, uh, which plays out largely as it does in the in the TV series, but there's a few extra bits. So, like, as well as Whole Rock, um, that section, which is, like, the fourth time Grant Naylor have written that section. <laughs> yeah, that's, like, <laughs> that was... might be their favourite sketch ever. I think most used sketch ever. In in the show notes, uh, we'll link to an article called History of a Joke, uh, which was something that John Hall put together of all the instances where Grant Naylor have done this exact <laughs> this exact thing. <laughs> but, yeah, the, he also there does his his stuff, his material about the, building the A to Z of the universe with all the little post offices and everything. So it's kind of like a best bits of series one and two Holly that haven't been used elsewhere in the book. Yeah. They've, like, condensed it into this, and there were a couple more like that for other characters, which we'll come to. I mean, talking of, um, you know, doing that, this scene verbatim from the TV show, This is a, this is an example of what I said earlier about they're not just pasting in the the script they're almost adapting they're almost transcribing the tv series the the actual scene so here we've got um incorporates a pause where the audience laughs so please can you direct me the instructor said (laughs) to a five-star hotel like the exact same cadence the yeah the actress (laughs) riding the laugh has been (laughs) has been incorporated yeah yeah, I noticed that as well. It's brilliant. It's weird to read. Like, there's, there's nothing else like it, really. Were they going off tapes? Like, yeah, rather than, yeah. Rather than the original scripts. Like, maybe they didn't have the scripts in front of them, but they had the tapes, and so they were sat there. And, like, Rob Rob was hitting pause and play on the VCR. Yeah. While Doug was typing it up. Walking around in circles, uh, chain smoking. And smoking. Um, is, this the, is this the only example, like the Red Dwarf were the only example of an author's writing writing a book and leaving gaps for the reader to laugh because they know they will <laughs> yeah. laugh because they've done it already on TV. It's <laughs> bizarre. In the next bit that's lifted from the TV is the bit of um, Lister getting ready and um, that also seems like it's written with the TV series in mind because when Lister's getting yes. ready uh, and putting on all his least smeggy things etc it um, <laughs> There's a sort of onomatopoeia version of the music that he's <laughs> listening to, and it is the same beat as the Howard Goodall <laughs> music cue that's used in the episode. Dum 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 dum. Yeah, it's bizarre. But also in that bit, you get Lister talking about his lucky pants, um, his 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 pulling pants basically that he he wears and are now so tatty and old and battered. And he talks about he wore them the night he met Susan Warrington, who got him drunk and took advantage of his tender years on the ninth hole, par four, dogleg of Brutal Municipal Golf Course. So, obviously, in the TV series, in Marooned, uh, there's a few differences. It's Michelle Fisher is the name of uh, the woman that he has sex with on the golf course, yeah, uh, rather than Susan Warrington. But there's two options here. It, <laughs> it doesn't mention... It mentions he was at a tender age, but it doesn't say that he was 12. 
Yeah. Uh, so either he did lose his virginity to Michelle Fisher when he was 12, and then he went back to the golf course with Susan <laughs> Warrington at a later date. So having sex on that particular bunker, on that particular hole of that particular golf course, is like his place that he takes women. Yeah, I'll buy that. <laughs> or this is the same incident, and he's been wearing his lucky pants since he was 12. <laughs> and so they're presumably... 12 year old's pants that he's, <laughs> that he's been wearing all this time it must be really really tight on him speaking of the pants there is um this is listed in the small points but it's worth bringing up now dave said that their lucky pants are described as both wife fronts and boxers on the same page uh <laughs> hamish said um then it's just must be a benign and unimaginative polymorph <laughs> and flapjack says uh, lister's lucky pants are boxers but they have a large letter y stitched on the front in tribute to lisa yates oh. <laughs> Which, uh, know, that's a nice story told in three parts huh? <laughs> there we go that's that's no canon yeah that's no canon I'll and yeah that. other i guess other little differences there's no mention of of rimmer having two pairs of socks uh, one rolled down his trousers, but instead, as revenge for uh, Rimmer pointing out his toupee, Holly simulates a massive boil on Rimmer's neck. Yeah, yeah. It's, re- it's really painful. When they're in Blue Midget, it describes Blue Midget as having caterpillar tracks, so that you know when they go and land on the surface of the, the little moon where Nova 5 is, it goes onto its caterpillar tracks and rolls around, which is not dissimilar, but better than having big fucking legs that hop about. <laughs> in, the, in the previous... Uh, cast Danny you were talking about how you'd pictured the hoppers on Mimus as being sort of Blue Midget-esque mm. the new Blue Midget with the legs but this time it's, it seems a lot more useful for Blue Midget to have Caterpillar trucks. Yeah, um, Starbuck didn't exist then, I mean it'd be it, it's mm. interesting, Blue Midget has clearly got a particular job and so I'm not saying they wouldn't be in Blue Midget for this John anyway but you'd think that Starbug would kind of be part of this kind of description, you know what I mean? Like Starbug was um, used for this, but they were using Blue Midget, if you see what I mean. Like it's almost as if Starbug just didn't exist in their heads at this point. Like we were saying, we don't know precisely exactly, when yeah. they were writing the book versus writing series three. And it, and of course, Starbug was originally White Midget and then Green Midget and then Starbug as yeah. series three was in development. So presumably that happened after the book was written. Yeah, oh, I mean, shit, yeah, of course. Of course, it wasn't even Starbug while they were shooting three. Yeah, not not at first. Yeah, um, yeah, because all the special it was it was almost decided by the special effects. Okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. And hence, hence the accidental recording of White Midget in yeah pre-filming for Body Swap. Oh, I've got another example of something that's um, potentially TV-based rather than script-based. There's no muck on the yes, nugget. I was going to fucking <laughs> say like. <laughs> No They've preempted <laughs> any potential problems in the future. Saying it out loud in the TV show is one thing, but I'm pretty sure if they had written the words McNugget in print, they would have to have had the R um, right, yeah. next to it. Yeah, you probably don't want to draw attention to the fact that it's a proper brand name yeah. from a really, really rich and expansive <laughs> company. I think you could probably say McNugget in text as much as you want. You just ha- If it's a registered trademark, you have to yeah. mark it as such. It's weird because Pepsi doesn't do that, and Coke doesn't. Pepsi do that. would be buried. Mm. Coke is um, is a nickname, really, isn't it? It's obvious. The thing is that when they're talking about Coke and Pepsi, it's obvious what the fuck they're talking. About. That's the <laughs> thing. I don't know whether that's just how they got away with it. Or... No, they're talking about uh, cocaine <laughs> and Pepsi from Pepsi and Shirley. The <laughs> so Pepsi would be buried because she's very old. <laughs> yeah. 
Pepsi would be very by Shirley. Is Pepsi a, a woman? A woman, yes. Ah, okay. <laughs> so this section of of Crichton ostensibly hmm. morphs into something that's new and original after a while. I've just got two more points to make before we go into that. So there's a section where uh, Crichton, it's in Crichton's head, and he's um, and he's sort of thinking about androids and how much he loves it, and the, the whole thing which I like of him uh, allowing himself one chocolate, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> spread out over time so as not to exhaust. Reminds me the of Charlie, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. He'd have a tiny bit of chocolate. Yeah, um... <laughs> but it kind of, it expands a little bit on. And androids, and so obviously in the TV series we see one scene, but because this is in Crichton's head, he can he sort of goes through his favourite characters and his favourite situations. And Carstairs, JC and Molly as characters all carried over into the Smegazine strip. Uh, and like there's, there's specific things that are referenced that then were incorporated into that Smegazine strip, so it's all it all ties up. However, there is also a character called Hudson. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's so. like it's Hudson uh, wins the lottery and hires his former human masters as his servants and stuff like that. So Hudson is quite a major character that Crichton really looks up to in Androids, and yet <laughs> Hudson was his nemesis in yeah. real life. And and that description of him like laughing and slapping his metallic knee and everything that again that's pure <laughs> David Ross. You can just you yeah. can only picture David Ross as Crichton doing that. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is we've talked about, you know, this is sort of the first diversion, really, where Crichton packs up his head and, and unscrews everything. When he's uh, when he's dismantling himself, he does so with a sonic screwdriver. Yeah, and Lister now, uses it to build him back up later. And then, yeah, later Lister uses the sonic screwdriver to rebuild him. At the time when I read this, I am one of the the generation that didn't, have Doctor Who on TV when I was a kid. I was just born at just the wrong time for it. I never got into Doctor Who at all until it came back in 2005, and now it's, like, the second biggest <laughs> TV show for me behind Red Dwarf. Uh, and so I had no idea that this was a reference to anything in, until reading it now as an adult. I thought it was just a cool-sounding name for a screwdriver. Yeah. It's quite incongruous, really, when you when you realise yeah. Red <laughs> like, Dwarf and Doctor Who evidently exist in the same universe. It can't be, it can't be, um, but it, it has to be a reference. And but it's also such a like it, it's kind of such a big part of the identity of Doctor Who to just kind of like pluck that out and use it for yourself. It's a bit weird. It's not like an obscure thing yeah. in Doctor Who. I'm going to play the devil's advocate and say that it might be a coincidence because they've also got the Sonic Superbomb. Oh, yeah. And I think it might just be a sciency thing, a sciency word for things. Maybe, but just Sonic Screwdriver specifically. It I mean, would yeah. be a huge coincidence if Rob and Doug weren't aware of the Sonic Screwdriver in Doctor Who. Yeah. Considering they have made Doctor Who references in other things, uh, such as the Zygons are mentioned um, in Balance of Power. Zygon is. Warships, is that what? Is yeah, that Zygon what? Warships. I didn't, what again, fuck? this is another thing that I didn't realise until much later on. In fact, I wrote an article at one point on G&T because Zygons are mentioned in Son of Cliché as well. And I say it's a, it's a, it's a reference to the same made up species that they mentioned in Balance of Power. And then someone pointed out in the comments, yeah, it could also be a reference to the really major Doctor Who villain, <laughs> the Zygons from 1974's Terror of the Zygons. Yeah, it's one of those things that um, I just didn't really realise until the nineteenth of July, twenty twenty. Just one. <laughs> I, literally, like I, I've heard Zygons in Red Dwarf, Zygons in Doctor Who, millions and millions of times—not millions, but lots of times—and I've never connected the two words 
to be the same word. (laughs) Then, after Crichton basically kills himself, it then we go on a big variation and it's some of the strongest stuff in this part I think uh, some of the best material of basically what happens next with the Nova 5 uh, firstly there's uh, <laughs> they salvage it for supplies uh, which causes Lister to flush out all the dog's milk into the vacuum of space where it forms a huge dog milk asteroid yeah. for future generations to puzzle over which is brilliant, a brilliant image that you could only do in book form at yeah. this stage. Like, I'm sure you could CG up a dog milk after. I mean, there's, there's definitely sort of place for a, an egg, like in an episode at some point where a ship gets hit by a white asteroid, and it's never explained, but that's literally what it is. Well, according to the size scan, it's 98% marabone jelly. <laughs> but then we come to that really creepy, horrible bit where Rimmer is exploring the Nova 5, and he comes across the stasis booths. Other than the polymorph, this is the most aliens this book gets, I think. Mm. It's very, very dark. The whole idea of like someone being stuck halfway out of a stasis booth, where the top half's yeah. been preserved and the bottom half isn't. I find that this, the image is just horrific. It's also incredibly irresponsible of him to open it up, because that that person could have been delicately removed from suspended animation in a way that they wouldn't have died from shock, I'm sure of it. But he just opens yeah. it up and just, like, see what happens. Rimmer effectively kills someone yeah. accidentally. Yeah. Which he didn't do with the crew. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, he, he is responsible for one death. Okay, so, yeah. okay, so he's still he's still in the plus then. He's still in the green. <laughs> And then, in a sort of a less visceral way, but just as horrifying psychologically, the broken hologram that he finds that's on a loop. Yeah. It's not dissimilar to the to the famous double rimmer scene, where he goes in and there's a hologram sort of having a conversation that he doesn't quite understand, and then it loops and she returns back to where she started, and it mm. all happens again. And again, like I don't know how how deep to go into it, but like, does that hologram have a consciousness? Is that hologram living this over and over again? Is it retaining the memory of the fact it's having to do it on an infinite loop for three million years? Or, as far as they're concerned, is that just like, are they aware that they're on the loop or not? In my head, the only way that that isn't a horrific idea, like it's played from the start, memory is wiped, you play yeah. the thing through, it gets stuck, it goes back to the beginning, the memory is wiped, starts again, it goes the way through. Rather than knowing that it's in a loop. Yeah, yeah that is, yeah, that's like, that's like a. Seventh circle of hell. Yeah. <laughs> for for everyone's sanity, let's assume that that's the case. It's really nice as well. Like, the way that these three episodes, I guess, are kind of melded into one, like Future Echoes into Crichton into Me Squared, like having yeah. the, the technology of, you know, of bringing back the second Rimmer B from the Nova 5 is just very neat. It's very, uh, it's very tidy yeah. and makes sense. Mm, very much so. It, yeah, it's the fact that it comes from the Nova 5 and it's not. Okay, it is always like still people talk about this to some extent of the fact that you know it's clearly established Red Dwarf can only sustain one hologram, except like you you can quite happily accommodate a second a hologram systems. for quite a while <laughs> without <laughs> it really being a problem. Yeah, uh, the fact that it now comes from somewhere external uh, justifies it a lot more, and it gives it's also a reason why following the events of Me Squared in the TV series where it's clear that having an, a second hologram is absolutely fine. Why doesn't Lister just bring back Kachansky or Peterson or whoever mm-hmm. permanently? 
It also gives a reason to murder a Rimmer as well, which there isn't really a good reason in Me Squared, but there is in the book. Other than that it's, it's inconvenient, <laughs> it's inconvenient for Lister <laughs> to, to have that happening. Yeah. The Me Squared stuff in general, it seems like it's got far more changes to it compared to the Future Echoes or Crichton. And it also, it's like, again, it's the same rough shape yeah. of what happens. It's split down the more, middle, basically. More things happen. Yeah. But like the dialogue is very very different a lot of the time there's hardly any dialogue that's transposed directly across i get the feeling that like unlike in the Crichton section as we discussed where they were so slavishly close to the tv version that they incorporated the same pauses it feels like they've just rewritten me squared from scratch like perhaps not even not referring to the original quite so much as they have previously and there's like they bring they get across the gist of me squared and all the you know the the beats that they hit, but they've not done it in a way that's directly taken from the TV. Maybe it's because the script for Me Squared was quite a late addition to Series One because yeah. uh, it was written to replace Body Snatcher. Maybe they weren't you know maybe there were elements of it that they weren't happy with it. They just said, "Oh, do you know what? Fuck it, let's just throw it out and start again." Uh, which is wrong because it's a brilliant episode. But <laughs> the exercise scene is. Almost everything from the TV version, I think, is in the book. But again, that gets um, that gets fleshed out a lot more as well. I mean, especially since we're inside our Rimmer's head, which is another actually huge change in like the tone of it. Is that mm. we we are inside our Rimmer's head and our Rimmer's head only. Yeah, and it makes it a lot clearer, obviously, which one's which. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, it it makes us sympathize with it makes us pick a side basically which yeah. we don't really in the in the tv series i don't think it's kind they're kind of interchangeable in the TV kind series. of yeah i mean the, the duplicate is definitely played as a dick yeah I, I don't think he gets the opportunity to massively interact with the others apart from maybe in the cinema but yeah it's um it really leans into why they're different and it's the duplicate mm. that brings it up first with it you know you're different because you've been with him you know he's changed you um yeah. I can't remember. Is that mentioned in the TV version, or is that exclusive to the book? The idea that it was exclusive to the book, yeah, yeah. Because I think that it works for the TV version better than it does for the book. Because <laughs> I get the feeling like I don't know if there's supposed to be a long period of time where this is all happening, but it reads like um, you know everything happens one after another, pretty much. Uh, so, like, does Rimmer have enough time to be changed by Lister when? It gets brought back, and almost immediately they do future echoes, and then straight after that they do Crichton. Like they've, yeah. How long is it in between Rimmer being turned back on and and now? Is there enough time for for Lister to have changed him that much? The way that my brain's working that one out is that he Lister says you've been with the company for fourteen years, and I've been with them for eight months, which means that Rimmer's at least been with Lister for eight months, and the backup that is the me squared. Is the backup ah. from before ah. he met Lister? Yeah, right. So, so yeah, eight it's... months, eight months difference between that rumor and this rumor. That's so in my not... head. That's what that works out as. It's not so much that is. Oh no, that... no, that doesn't work. No, because they, no. They're, they're coming from the same backup. Because then the original rumor yeah. would have all, wouldn't have had that either. Or you, um, oh. it's it. it Okay, so we're thinking of it in digital terms, but think of this in disc terms. So you have mm. every time you back up your personality, it uses another disc. Our Rimmer uses the most up-to-date backup disc from maybe a couple of weeks before the accident. And the one he's found for his other Rimmer is an older backup disc. Okay. 
Because we're analog. Because we're, we're in the eighties and it's about red, tape, basically. Red Dwarf, red dwarf runs on just updated eighties stuff. And it is, yeah. yeah, it would make sense. It's tape machines because you see those in the in the learning room. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it's it's not so much. I mean, they're called discs, but the <laughs> the internal logic is tapes, isn't it? When you think about it. Yeah, or or record or vinyl, I guess. Yeah. Because there's the stuff with the the broken discs, the hologram protection disc, and the Nova Five skipping and jumping, which I guess CDs did as well to some extent. No, but I it's, mean, it's burn, a mishmash. Yeah, okay. yeah like burnable discs um, were one use and out for years. Yeah, um, that's true. As the the, the you know the main media, so like reusable digital storage only really started with mini disc in like two thousand and something. Reusable portable digital storage, I should say. Meanwhile, while Rimmer is living with Rimmer, uh, there's a whole new diversion. So R- Lister's busy repairing Crichton, and immediately when it gets him working. <laughs> Uh, first of all, I always I always like the babbly Crichton, <laughs> like spurting out random words and stuff when Lister's in the middle of fixing him. That's Robert. Yeah, <laughs> it it does totally, and I don't know whether that's the audio book, but it definitely feels like oh, whether it's it's similar to Quarantine after he's got the axe in his back where he's going, or like yeah, exactly, Kaplunk, Kaplunk, yeah. whoops, where's my thribble? Yeah, <laughs> two and one half fetches, please. <laughs> so I think yeah, I think we can say that. Crichton was David Ross Crichton until Lister fixed him, and then he became Robert Llewellyn Crichton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. In my head, that's how it works. Yeah, but immediately after repairing him, without giving him a chance to sort of get his bearings or anything, Lister immediately grills him for information about the duality jump drive. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> it's not. It makes it slightly. I don't like that because it makes it that Lister only rebuilt Crichton for selfish purposes. Is because he needed to find out about this. It wasn't some altruistic kindness thing. It do, it does go to to lengths to explain that you know that Lister felt sorry for Crichton after he'd shut down, and um, he felt you know he wanted to do something nice for for Crichton because because of how bad he felt about it. But at the same time, that's not borne out by his actions of just immediately grilling him for info yeah. about the duality drive. I think I think Lister just got very impatient, like of like or just literally just be like, I need to get back to earth as soon as possible and i've been given some glimmer of a potential thing and i need to know more about it it's like you can you can go chill after i've asked you this question but <laughs> once guess. i've asked you this question you can go off to the do what you need to go do but just for now which <laughs> what it does is go down to the to the bar and try and try and follow the orders to chill out which is very funny yeah it is. <laughs> he, he, like he gets up the de- dictionary definition of like being relaxed and ends up falling off his chair and I can yeah. totally see Robert doing that as a brilliant <laughs> yeah. little, like just a scene where he just sort of slowly just relaxes and just lets go of every single muscle in his body and just collapses. <laughs> he's in the bar for eight hours, like he doesn't know when to stop relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's dancing, he's tap dancing to uh, Hugo Lovepole's sexy ballad, Baby Don't Be Ovulating Tonight. <laughs> Which, later... That's a summer cliche gag. Even if it isn't, it, that is a summer cliche <laughs> it gag. Feels like... That was in one of the newer series, wasn't it? It's a series 12 joke. It, yeah, it Eventually, it got adapted. Baby Don't Be Ovulating Tonight uh, is no longer a Hugo Lovepole ballad. It's a, it's a Lister composition, uh, like the Indling song, because he plays it in Siliconia. Ah, it's a cover. Uh, and then <laughs> no, he claims he's written it, and then in a deleted scene from Siliconia, it, it gets performed. Uh, which is on the Blu-ray DVD of um, when uh, when they come back from Siliconia, uh, having been converted back to humans from droids, um, Lister is somehow able to still control 
Rimmer and Cat to some extent, so he, he starts playing Baby Don't Be Ovulating Tonight and makes them sing and dance along with it. It got deleted. It was a bit weird. But <laughs> Of all the things. <laughs> of all of the all things the to things bring to, back. Yeah, yeah, to bring back. Fuck me. I mean, like, Doug, Doug can't remember how um, well, what the Kinatawari language is, but <laughs> Baby Don't Be Ovulating Tonight has been swimming around in his head for 30 years. <laughs> Danny, you mentioned that, you know, his motivation when he was fixing Crichton is like, I just need to know this now. There's a bit, mm. there's a bit just after that, and I think it's real. It's a real key for Lister's personality, and like the stuff we were talking about earlier, that he is intelligent, but he just lacked the motivation. Mm-hmm. When he needs to learn about uranium mining, like he has this thing, he he finds out that he needs to get this uranium two three three, and he needs yep. to find out immediately how to do that. He goes and he sits in the library for two and a half days, and he he by hook or by crook learns absolutely everything that he needs to know he's got so much motivation and he achieves something that you know Rimmer has spent <laughs> 15 years trying to learn about uh, engineering and astro navigation or whatever it might be and, and completely failed yeah. Lister Lister as soon as he has the need he has the necessity to know something he's like okay done I, I made exactly this point. I said, at this point, Lister has probably learnt more than Rimmer about something to gain a level above him. Yeah. Lister is smart, but only uses it when he's truly driven. And that, yeah, it's, that is Lister's personality. It just shows his tenacity when it's, yeah. when it's required. And this is, this is the, the, the duality between him and Rimmer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Rimmer has all the motivation. Yeah, all the motivation that Lister doesn't have and none of the capability in Lister. None of the aptitude, yeah. yeah. What a team they would make. And they frustrate the shit out of each other because it's like Lister thinks Rimmer should stop and Rimmer thinks Lister should try harder. And it's like they're, they're both doing the other, yeah. what the other person they're wants. They're both to trying to... Yeah, drag the other over to their side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, uh, like a yin and yang. It's like uh, the moon can't make moonlight without the sun, and the sun can't make moonlight without the moon. That's good. That yeah. someone should uh, someone should make a speech of that. Yeah. <laughs> they did. They make a pretty neat speech. There. Yeah, that's it. Uh, there's another bit here though that shows the the other side of of Lister and why it's. I find Lister and Crichton here slightly icky in a way that I don't un- in TV. Because as per the TV, he's really disturbed by Crichton being subservient. Like when he comes back and finds that the sleeping quarters have been done and like Rimmer's given him these jobs, he's, he's pissed off about it. But Crichton never gets the breaking of his programming and his act of rebellion here. Instead, yeah. like Lister comes back and he's like, ah, oh, that's disgusting that Rimmer's done this. I tell you what, come with me, let's go and mine uranium. <laughs> so like he he's disturbed by Crichton being subservient, but will still use it to his advantage. I mean, literally, there's a scene in in I think it's series twelve. Where it's like, oh no, it's 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 uh, the end of Twentica. Yeah. So basically, listed exactly the same thing, where it's just like you know you're your own boss, blah 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 blah. However, these shoes aren't going to get taken off by themselves, and it's like you know that whole thing of. There's still a point where Lister will still use Crichton as a yeah. He hasn't fully figured than... out his ethics about Crichton ever. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. I guess that it's a it's a common and true thing of that sort of flexible uh, ideology of like. Mm. In theory, I know that Amazon is really bad for its workers, and it's, it's yeah. Jeff Bezos has all this untold wealth and doesn't do anything with it, and I, I really shouldn't use it. But it's so convenient that I can order something and it arrives the next day, so I do it. So off they go, uranium mining, and you get, there's a little bit where, after we had Holly's best bits earlier, there's a cat's best bits, where he refuses to wear the spacesuit and talks about the cats don't do the W word. And so, yeah, that whole section of Lister trying his best to get the mining done, but 
he's picked the two worst people. It's, it's maybe a bit undercooked as a as a bit. Like it's it's really interesting and weird. Like it's the sort of like adventure they've never been on in a TV show. Like even you know five when they're going about everywhere, they've never like gone somewhere to hard graft for a few weeks mm. to do something like this. So it's, it's weird that it kind of kind of goes by quite quickly. And really, they've they've gone in order to give Rimmer and Rimmer the the space they need to melt down, basically. Yeah, <laughs> and it does um, the Rimmer the breakdown of their relationship happens much more slowly and protractedly mm. you get these little glimpses of it like in the tv show they go from being basically fine to having that full-blown blazing row and mm. in the book it takes them three months to get to that point and so you get the little bits of antagonism along the way and then and you know rimmer noticing things about himself that he's never noticed before it's it's a lot more luxuriously paced in the book and it's so much better for it what i find interesting is so at the start uh, we're in Rim, our Rimmer's head, obviously, and um, they've just gone off mining. And, and his motivation for doing a month's job in two weeks is basically he wants Lister's recognition. I, mm. I can't read it in any other way in that he says the look on Lister's face when he comes back and he has to admit through gritted teeth that you guys make a good team. Like, oh, that, he, he just wants Lister's recognition and that's it. And he like, wants, yeah. you can't imagine the other Rimmer having that same motivation. His motivation seems to be more, um, I just want to torture this this guy. <laughs> I just want to torture the other Rimmer because I think he's weak. And that's further borne out by the fact that the duplicate is cheating at sleeping and our Rimmer never even thinks about it. He doesn't. Yeah, yeah that's an interesting thing. I was, I was thinking about that when I was reading through because yeah. I was like, because at no point does it say, "Oh, I, 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 you know, I've thought about it, but I didn't do it." Yeah, yeah. He's, so, he's not gone to the same level of 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 spite that the other one has. Ah, so our Rimmer is pushing himself to the limit, not cheating in order to do something for the good of the crew as a whole, and he's dragged down into into failure by his past demons, basically his past self. It's pretty deep, man. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, that thing good. about him wanting Lister's approval is interesting because there was a bit I forgot to mention earlier. Right at the start of this part, uh, not long after Rimmer's brought back, um, Lister tells Rimmer that he doesn't like him, and it's quite heartbreaking because yeah. like it's like it's an unspoken thing in the early stages of the of the TV series, I guess. But for Lister to actually say. I don't like you, Rimmer. It's quite, it's quite sad, mm. <laughs> and it obviously it has an impact on Rimmer because he just it didn't occur to him that Lister wouldn't like him, mm. uh, and so yeah, maybe now a bit later in the book is this is him saying right, well, if if you don't like me now, then mm. wait till you see what I can do. That's one of the the big moments that this Rimmer has that the other Rimmer didn't have, like a big, big like psyche changing moment almost. I guess yeah. yeah. Uh, so fair enough. I, t- I take back my earlier criticism that um like maybe this has all happened too quickly for Lister to have an impact on Rimmer's personality he totally has yeah in like, extreme circumstances it, yeah if it is a shorter period of time just to skip back to that mining section there's a couple of things that interested me that um so cat despite his laziness and the fact that he refuses to work for more than a few minutes at a time the cat picks up how to drive the um the ore transporter thing and becomes an expert at it and is pulling off <laughs> wheelies and stunts within like within a day of, of picking it up that's totally in sync with his tv version 
yeah. it doesn't manifest itself until much later in TV, in basically in series six, where he's forced to become a useful member of the crew. But the cat isn't just like adept at piloting Starbug. The it, the implication is that he's an expert at it, and you know mm-hmm. he can make Blue Midget dance. To quote a much worse part of the dwarf, <laughs> yeah, uh, same, and so same idea, the fact yeah. that he just effortlessly can do this thing with style. The, the same thing you have with you know with cats in general is that they're usually pretty good at most things they put their hand to. You know, <laughs> if they want to catch a fly, they'll probably catch a fly really quickly, but they'll just not be bothered. And it's like I can, yeah. I just don't wanna. <laughs> there, yeah. There's a line earlier on which is get past, uh, which is it's just speaking of things that are very true to real cats. Uh, Kat says at one point, if you try and take this food, you're in serious personal danger. <laughs> Which is just apropos of no, no one's trying to take his food, but he says it anyway. <laughs> and that is very, like, yeah. if cats could talk. <laughs> one of my kittens at the moment has started to do this thing where she's doing exactly that, where she'll grab a mouse and then growl at her sister, <laughs> even though the sister's not bothered for it. She's <laughs> literally going, fuck off away from me. Like, <laughs> this is mine. You you're not having it. And it's like Muffin's just like I don't want it. But Muffin's like yeah, but yeah, but you're not having it though. Preemptive strike. <laughs> yeah. Conversely, so Cat behaves here in a way that fits in with his TV character. I don't quite buy Crichton being so useless on that jaunt. It's like it's, it, it's like you say it's is yeah. he's not he's not being the Crichton that we know. It's perfectly valid again as a take on the character. It's just not the Crichton that we know. Because we know that you know in real life, in real life, in the <laughs> as as Crichton went on to develop over the course of the next thirty odd years, he's mm. he's the most competent and the most useful person in the crew to have on a jaunt like this. But okay. here, he's not because he doesn't get to break his programming. He gets stuck on the fact that no, I can't do this. Yeah. So this is this is this is where I put my this is the bit of the the plot where I put that note in about where he's more like David Ross than than Robert mm. Llewellyn. And it's it yeah it, it you know it's like he can't he just can't bring himself to become useful at doing anything other than what he would normally do. So you know instead of like going to do something he should be like the the bit, although the bit that made me really funny was the um, when he asked him to scrape the um, the detritus off the ore the the uranium ore that he was getting. And he hadn't. He'd like polished one to like a perfect shine. Yeah. I just, I love, I love the Do idea of like, every, like, like there's hundreds <laughs> of them stacked up, and there's just one perfect one. Just, it's immaculate. Yeah, no, just one more coat of beeswax. <laughs> um, he's polished it. It does make sense if you think about it. Is that Crichton is an inconsistent character in this book and doesn't reach the same heights that he does in the TV show. And that's because Crichton just hasn't been figured out at this point in, in the show's life, like or in, yeah. in, in their heads at all. I mean, like Clem says, I don't think Crichton really fits the de facto science officer role in any of the novels, like in the TV show, because there's no need for him to provide the exposition in that way. And um, yeah, and that's because all of that stuff happens about five years later. <laughs> um, no, mm. not five years, you know couple of years later so several series later yeah yeah it's like they they take the raw element of series two Crichton and then develop him off in two completely different ways in the tv series he goes off in this direction and in the book he goes off in this direction and then Crichton snaps back to the tv series in the book I was gonna say it's gonna be interesting when we get to better than life uh how much he adheres to infinity Crichton versus series three and four Crichton is is he Ross or is he Llewellyn we'll find out 
Izzy Ross, though. I can definitely imagine. Izzy R. Rob or Ross? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Is that what they meant by that? My mind is blown. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) A Robberus was a red herring. It wasn't about Lister at all. It was about the two versions of Crichton. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Danny, have you still got your omnibus handy? Constantly in my hand. So I want to check. I want to check something because I spotted something when I was reading through that is I've never spotted before, and I very because re- I'm reading the original first edition of Infinity, and I historically have only re- I got the omnibus when I was about seven and mm-hmm. have thumbed it to death, and so like I've only really properly read the omnibus and listened to the audiobook of this rather than the original edition. Mm-hmm. So I want to check that something's still there. Page two hundred and twenty-seven. Uh, it's basically the first page of part twenty-eight of this uh, of this part. Uh, towards the end, Lister wondering if he could find two more incompetent and useless in- assistants in the entire universe to help him mine for uranium. George the Third and Brian Kidd were the only two that sprang to mind. Ah, that is different. So oh. in the omnibus, it says the fifth-century Norwegian warrior King Havak the imbecile and his more idiotic half-brother were the only two that sprang readily to mind. <laughs> oh, do you know what this means? This means that at some point I'm going to have to sit through. I, I <laughs> There's thought, an article. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought Kevin Keegan and Joe Clump was the only major one, but there's there's clearly more that I'm going to. Fucking... One of us is going to have to sit down. Brian Kidd, though. <laughs> yeah, you've got three threads because you've got the uh, your book to the omnibus and then both of those to the audiobook. To be fair, when it, when it comes to cutting out, unlike Kevin Keegan, when it comes to cutting out like modern football or contemporary football references, having a dig at your city rival's manager is probably one that you should probably cut out of your science fiction book. Well... <laughs> No, <laughs> is that not the case? Is that not the case? Have I got my timelines wrong? Yeah, well, Brian Kidd. It's such an odd choice because I was looking. I thought Brian Kidd at this stage is that your go-to? Is Brian Kidd in the stupid chair? Because like, I couldn't <laughs> yeah. figure it out. Because Brian Kidd um, was a footballer who played for both Man United and Man City, right? Oh. Uh, so um, Rob and Doug are both Man United fans, and he was he was perfectly like unspectacular but a perfectly decent player for both of them uh he later went on to be a manager slash assistant manager he went on he was alex ferguson's number two at man united for quite a while in the mid 90s then they had a big falling out and he ended up back at man city as a coach and he's still there as uh, assistant to pep guardiola so he's had quite an incredible successful career as an assistant manager he's had a couple of manager jobs that didn't quite work out at blackburn whatever but at the time that this was written, he was the youth team manager youth team, at Man yeah. United. He was he was at Man United, who was who was their club. So maybe it's like them having a dig at their own person of like you know we as Aston Villa fans have no shortage of former managers for us to take a dig at if we wanted to go. You know, yeah. we could happily name several hundred of them. But it still doesn't make sense because he was the youth team manager at Man United in the late eighties and early nineties. So he was the youth team manager that produced Ryan Giggs. David, oh yeah, he was key to the development the of David Beckham, Gary Neville, <laughs> Phil Neville, Nicky Butt, to a lesser extent Robbie Savage, but like he wasn't incompetent by any stretch. So it's it's odd that they make that reference in the first. So place. are they? Are they? Have they just got like he wasn't? Maybe he just it wasn't very visible because that prior to that his Manchester. Roll was a player at City until '79, so maybe it's he played, just he played for United that... as well. 
Yeah, but that was before then. So his last yeah. Manchester job, let's say, okay. before the youth team was City. Uh, so maybe yeah, there's just leftover hate from that. <laughs> it's worth pointing out that, of course, at this stage, they wouldn't know that he yes. was about to produce Ryan Giggs <laughs> and David Beckham, etc. <laughs> but... Yeah, they're about to have a 20-year dynasty built yeah. from that youth team. Based, um, on, based on Brian Kidd's work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, like, he was the youth team manager that brought them through and then was the assistant manager throughout their most successful <laughs> period. So, yeah. Sticking up for Brian Kidd here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's get back to the actual book. So, yeah, when when they've done their mining, they return. Rimmer and Rimmer have that massive Barney, like which is it plays out similarly to the TV version, but it's a, a few extra like, body blows in there. Yeah, actually, it's interesting that they don't actually have a fist fight. Oh yeah, could. you'd think they'd be all over yeah, the opportunity guns. to like have any sort of physical contact. To I wonder if they just the forgotten face. that they could. <laughs> yeah, but Rimmer would still be too much of an inveterate coward, I oh, think, yeah, to right. even so they're both a have a physical they're both fight. They're both too cowardly, yeah. even though they know that they're composed of light and, <laughs> and can't actually be hurt. To be fair, though, the sort of the, the mental... Um, it, it's as bad to them. Yeah. The, the mental blows that they, they do with each other. They've probably much got more, software. Much more. They've probably got yeah. software for feeling pain as well because they've got software for uh, being tired. I mean, for fuck's sake. And yeah, that was a slight part of it. Of like, yeah, it's when you start to think about it too much, it's probably a bad idea. You can the explain fact it away. They that need sleep. All of that stuff is to keep them. St- feeling human and staying yeah. sane I think yeah. I think I, you can explain away almost all of it it's a hell of a lot of effort to go to, um, to to like to allow for holograms to exist presumably there has been failed experiments where holograms just went mad there's just yeah. Yeah, yeah. boiled in their own brains basically sort of similar to the Robocop kind of thing of like different versions you have to have the right personality in order to survive that yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I'm sure there's a whole prequel chapter that could be written that's very graphic and unpleasant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we should mention, one thing we haven't mentioned is in Rimmer's the Rimmer's attempts to fix the Nova 5 and to to get it back into from two pieces into one they actually first break one of the existing pieces and end up worse off than they were having broken the ship and destroyed half the scutters. What's interesting about that, though, is the fact that they do actually complete their task. Like, Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with what they did. Like, they actually put the ship back together. Yeah, Yeah, they killed all the scutters, but, you know, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's the only way they could get the job done in the time they had, is the fact that they had to have... But the the fact they actually did it, come hell or high war, they didn't completely screw it up, you know? Yeah, it's just the yeah, and w- what you see is the cost of it. Like you see the cost with the scutters, but also the mental cost from them both. So this, we're very close to the end, guys. Don't worry, we're very close to the end of the synopsis. <laughs> uh, but there's just a, the last few little bits. Uh, <clears throat> I really loved this time round. I really love reading the sequence uh, of Lister watching "It's a Wonderful Life." And so it's even though the fact that the point of it is that he's not really concentrating on it because he, because he's on his way back to Earth at last. But yeah, my history with the film is that obviously being a Red Dwarf fan, you know that it's a big thing, you know that it's a big influence, but I didn't actually watch it until uh, I was 21, I think. Yeah, 
It's basically I hadn't watched it before I uh, moved in with my partner Joe, uh, and but she had a, a tradition of watching it every single Christmas Eve, and so consequently, having not watched it until I was twenty one and moved in with my partner, I have now watched it every single Christmas Eve since. And as it is with her, and as it is with Robin, Doug, and Lister, it is one of my absolute all time favorite films, if not the favorite film, because it's yeah. so good. It's so good to read the interpretation of that scene because <laughs> it is it's such a key scene in the film. It's the scene where, as they put it, that um, they have there's a run at the at the building and loan, and uh, George has to persuade everyone not to uh, take all their money out. It's the first scene in the film that makes Lister cry. For me, I don't even get that far before I start crying. I start <laughs> crying <laughs> when uh, when old man Gower breaks down towards the start of the film, <laughs> but. A couple of interesting things about it is that uh, the prose refers to Jimmy Stewart all the time, which is obviously the actor's name. So it's like Jimmy Stewart dips into his honeymoon fund and and Jimmy Stewart has to persuade them, rather than the character name of George Bailey. And for reasons that we'll get onto in a future Ah. podcast, that's a really interesting choice, but we should perhaps wait until the next one. I took it to be like, you know, you have some people that, that, that that's how they interface with films or they describe a particular scene that they, they say the actor name rather than... Yeah, the, uh, it's it's yeah. something that doesn't stand out because it's something, you know, it's like, yeah, when you're recounting, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson goes and does this and, you know, that's a perfectly valid thing, but it's notable because of what happens later. Yeah, say. yeah. But what could it be? Uh, oh, and this bit also talks about the toupee over the uh, ozone layer, <laughs> which is <laughs> another thing that comes up later. The ozone, see, a hole in the ozone layer, that is an incredibly 80s and 90s thing. <laughs> they thought that that was what was going to destroy us rather yeah. than the um, the climate change brought about by greenhouse yeah. gases. But the, the holes the holes have, have gone or they've shrunk. Something has happened to them. I think they're not, It's they're, not as big a problem as it once was. They're not the thing, yeah. They're not the thing that's going to kill us. Yeah. No, it's all the no other it's, shit. it's definitely something else. Let's spin the wheel and find out what the <laughs> thing will be. <laughs> Ah, killer bees. Ooh, killer bees. <laughs> bees. In the next bit thereafter, it's the third of what I'm calling the best of characters uh, because there's a, there's a bit of in Rimmer's head. And I guess it's similar to when Lister thinks he's going to die uh, yeah. in the future Echoes section and he has a chapter going through his, his achievements, etc. Rimmer has the bit where he knows he's going to be turned off uh, and he talks about... Uh, the one time he has sex with uh, Magruder, uh, the fact that he's left it a little bit on the late side. But then there's all this extra stuff as well uh, that's about uh, fate and luck, uh, which is really good. Yeah. Uh, Stillian Leonides says in a comment, uh, Rimmer talking about the French dictation theory of life is interesting, and those tests must have had a profound effect on Robin Doug as they discuss them again in the Body Snatcher commentaries, which I hadn't put you know, two I two hadn't, together. I hadn't clicked no, with me, we'll but have yeah. To go back to that. Yeah. Really good, and then of course we get the gazpacho soup story, which is. I went back and looked and I, when I was reading this. I looked at the at the script of Me Squared, and I'd forgotten how brief it is in Me Squared. It's mm. like obviously as a, a a dramatic beat, it's huge, but it's he only tells that story for about it lasts about twenty thirty odd seconds in in the TV yeah. version. Whereas here it's luxury. It's like an extended remix. Oh of man, the it's like pylons more pain as well. It's like, brilliant. Oh, I, I, I've got, I've got to say that genuinely, Chris, when I read the when I listen to the audiobook version of this, this scene is 
again, and this is this is one of those ones that you don't really hear the whole story in the abridged version. Yeah. Um, but this version, this whole spiel about that terrible week that he had, leading up to this event, and in talking to Lister at, at like a friendly level, probably because he's arsehole, but <laughs> the fact that Chris is like, because Chris is playing it like Rimmer is just drunk and not giving a fuck anymore. But it's when Rimmer sounds his most normal. I just I think it's really nice to hear mm. Rimmer talking like this because it's the only time he's really spoken to Lister, uh, sort of even keel. One of the very few times in any Red Dwarf where he allows his emotions and his you know his reactions to events that have happened to him. It's the only time he allows himself to open up about that because we get into his head in the book and we hear about yeah. we hear through his internal monologue what he's thinking, but he's actually saying all this out loud. Uh, which is a big step for Rimmer, I think. Obviously, it's a horrendous story, and it kind of you know yeah. just gets worse and worse the more you. Hear it. So much... I was wondering when I was because obviously gazpacho soup is based on something that happened to Robin Doug at a um, I think it was LWT uh, the from meal at LWT, and and Rob was wondering <laughs> why the the gazpacho soup was cold. I wonder how many of the other things also happened to Robin Doug, <laughs> like... like hiring an escort. <laughs> well, I didn't want to speculate about that. <laughs> Well, the key thing, though, Rimmer talks about he hired an escort to act as his girlfriend, but there was no funny business. Uh, like he made, he was at point uh, keen to point out to 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 Lister that you know, no matter how much he was tempted, he he didn't hire an escort to have sex with her. Uh, which I guess is a bit of redemption for Rimmer's character because he's willing to go to a robot brothel and sleep with a robot prostitute, but not when it's an actual human being. Which I guess yeah. gives him some level of. Yeah. A few points back, unless he's lying. Yeah, <laughs> unless he's hit sugar. <laughs> but yeah, there's there's that, and he gets stood up, and so he imp- he panics and improvises a lie that he, she died on the way to the <laughs> thing. <laughs> Telling a joke, uh, and then suddenly realising that you can't remember the punchline. Oh. Uh, using the next person Long's cutlery, because you're keen to start from the outside, so you steal someone else's cutlery. How many of those happen to Rob or Doug yeah. <laughs> at some point? The thing about the, the the telling the joke and forgetting the punchline is something that technically it's already been used in Better Than Life, but it's been better used in a different context where yeah. Rimmer is trying to sort of exercise that particular demon of yeah. forgetting a joke but not mattering. Everyone laughs anyway because they're, yeah. because they're sycophants. So it's him trying to write all his inner demons. In yeah, the, in that's great. Life, yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Something that happened to him that we don't, we don't know about in the TV series, but it's no. there in the background. Yeah, it does. It's tied to the fact that they obviously they had the, they must have had one big unifying idea about who these characters were, and it's just that the two different mediums both got different parts of the jigsaw, yeah. <laughs> depending on what works for them, and you can kind of like smoosh them together and get a very, like a very complete idea of like how much these guys were creating these characters in those two or three years really and like advancing them and getting them to the point that would be you know that they're iconic they're, they're yeah they're sort of key key yeah. character notes yeah yeah obviously the book paints this mistake the gazpacho soup in a different light like in the tv series it's just it's the one thing he fucked up with whether it's obviously this fleshes out and it's like this <clears> isn't the, this is just the last of a string of events it wasn't you know I wrote down here. It's the soup was just the shit icing on the shit cake. <laughs> <laughs> International debris said in a comment. Uh, uh, I love the gazpacho soup story. A real improvement on the already great TV version. 
Rimmer's Evening being a disaster from the start, and then Lister being consoling at the end. It's a really beautiful chapter that feels like the first time the two of them really get along in the book. Mm. And and I think it follows on. It follows on from a moment that Rimmer has just before when when they're arguing about who should be turned off. Um, Lister says something along the lines of, "Ah, it doesn't doesn't make any difference. You're both exactly the same." And and it says that Rimmer said, "No, we're different." It, like piteously, he said, or pitifully. It's like yeah. he's coming to the realization that no, no, I'm different. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I am actually different. Yeah, I'm, I'm your friend. Not, I am like, not the same person. Yeah, I'm the version yeah. of Rimmer that's your friend. Come on. And then we end on again. We talked about the first chapter, the first part rather, ended with a little teaser of what's to come, with the mention of the cat still being alive in the hold. And this is no different, except it's it's such a great little mini chapter at the end of. Uh, Dave sums it up in the comments the dreamlike quality of the final chapter and what a setup for the next section so yeah it, it is there's two things that are working towards setting up the next section one we'll talk about <laughs> in that you know it sets up that you know is in the Nova 5 and it works and there is there's Earth there's yeah. your sequel hook because what's going to happen when they get to Earth but there is a specific line in this which we all kind of well when we were reading this book, you two both spotted it uh, mm. and were like, oh, as soon as I got to that line, it was like, light bulb goes off. And to me, I didn't have a clue what you were talking about. It still hadn't occurred to me for like the <laughs> 30th or 40th time of reading this book. We'll get into it in the next one because we're concerned about spoilers, but there is something that is said on the very last page of this part that has, is it's hidden in plain sight, shall yeah. we say. Yeah. It makes me feel queasy, the whole the whole passage makes me feel queasy. Like that, that feeling of like, of that dream, like, like not things not happening in a linear fashion in your head. And like one thing just happening after the other and not being quite sure whether it happened. Like it's such a recognizable kind of dream feeling. And it's always that feeling that comes along with things not going quite right in a dream. Maybe it's this book has influenced my dreams. I don't know, but quite a dreadful feeling. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Dreadful in the true sense. Yeah. Hmm. Full of dread. Thanks. <laughs> uh, let's move on. <laughs> so yeah, we'll we'll come back to that and what it all means in the next instalment of the Dwarfcast Book Club. But uh, in the meantime, we've just got a few things to wrap up on this one. So let's have a little sting of music. Right, so obviously, as we said at the start, we've had so many comments in for this part in particular. And we uh, thank you to everyone that has joined in, but we're sorry that we don't have time to go into absolutely all of them. Uh, but we're just going to run through a few extra comments uh, in what we like to call small points uh, in this section. So anything that uh, you know hasn't been mentioned so far, hasn't been discussed so far. Uh, Milo Scat uh, gives another example of the description of Lister accidentally breaking things, uh, which is on page 110, must be drawn from real experience with Craig Charles on set. <laughs> so that's another example of something being incorporated in. Uh, international Debris, uh, the further I get into this, the more I realise it wouldn't be a good film, but I'd love to see the books done as a big-budget TV series. If anyone wanted to do a reboot, scene-by-scene adaptation of the books would be incredible, uh, which is something Danny came to the same conclusion as we were talking through, wasn't it? One of my notes literally just says the rumours bickering causes the Nova Five to split into three sections, and my note is just, "Oh, just make this book into a series, please." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, 
it's a weird one, isn't it? Making <laughs> making a book that's got big swaths taken from a TV series into another TV series. Dave points out uh, the cat is a little more absent in general in this book than he is in the series. I guess the books don't have the problem of having to give a series regular a certain amount of material per 26 minutes. Yes. Uh, I like it in a way, having him occasionally slink in and not do very much makes him feel more like a real cat. <laughs> As a wider point, this is the big, big, big difference between the Song of Ice and Fire books and the Game of Thrones TV show, is that the former doesn't have to worry about actors and so can do the um, proper um, character stuff and leave a character for years and years on end and come back to them without having to worry about any of that, and it really makes a huge difference. So there you go. There's my Game of Thrones mention for the week. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, Quinn says, why is it, do you think, that Lister owns a bass guitar that he's putting into storage rather than a guitar guitar? Of all the little changes to make, that screams for the sake of it more than anything else. But yeah, it struck me as odd. I, I, couldn't, I don't know why. <laughs> he's, not, um, he's not a bass guitar player at all. Like, What's the in Last Human um, when he's in Hell? Um... Spoilers. <laughs> okay, in in the last human, there's a part where um, he's been tortured by a particular type of music. Is it like it's like drum drum solos, very rhythm heavy yeah. sort of music that he um, that real quick Charles probably would really like. But yeah, um, um, yeah, likes yeah. melody. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's not he's not a rhythm um, section guy. Uh, Clem. Uh, has done someone else who's done some good research for us and then and dug out some quotes um that he said Rob Grant mentions Chelsea Brown who's mentioned in the book as an actress who supposedly chewed Lister's ball of gum in chapter 4 uh, in a magazine interview he talks about Muggs Murphy and then says we didn't want to use any contemporary stuff we didn't want to use Wilma Flintstone and that kind of thing we wanted to create our own icons we didn't want to be using Marilyn Manson we wanted to be using Chelsea Brown who you've never seen and things like that but in the end, sometimes you've just got to have that shorthand of using something people know. Did you actually say Marilyn Manson or do you mean Marilyn Monroe? Did I say Marilyn Manson? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I meant to say Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> so yeah, but that's I guess that's something that Rob and Doug have gone back and forth on several times then as as discussed of like, do we have real people? Do we have made up people? Mm. Like even different versions of this book yeah. have different choices there, and they've never settled. Yeah. And then in the end, in the in the TV series, yeah, it was all out uh, proper references mm. by the end. Dax one hundred and one. Uh, if anyone owns the Better Than Life number one remastered fan club magazine, it has a small interview section uh, where Rob and Doug talk about originally wanting to transcribe the shows from the series into novels, and I believe Capsy has that quote in front of him. I do. Okay, Rob Grant. We started off writing the books and we were just going to transcribe the shows from the series. We started off saying, well, let's do before the series started because there's all that backstory that we worked out and we hadn't used anywhere uh, and we enjoyed that bit so much, but we didn't enjoy at all transcribing the TV plots. And then Doug says, yeah, no, yeah. Again, it was that we didn't want to rip people off. Uh, he's referring to a previous comment he made that they don't want to rip people off um, with script books, interestingly. Mm. Um, where it's basically <laughs> the TV series with he said and then the script and then it looks like this and then it's all the scripts. It seems like a rip-off to me. So yeah, they did use that format every now and then, but I guess you can forgive yeah. the odd you know, they mix it here in. and there that are like yeah. that, considering how much extra stuff we get. And yeah, and like even within that, as we've said, they they used the opportunity to tell a different version of those stories. It wasn't Definitely. just the same. It wasn't the same progression of events. And I think it's really interesting, especially the way Me Squared and Crichton 
interweave with each other. Mm, yeah. And so they, do, they don't wait for the events of Crichton to finish before they start the events of Me Squared. Yeah. Good. Oh, I had a small point that I wanted to make. Uh, on page 127, there is, uh, right towards the end, uh, for the most part, details of the cat's background remained obscure. Uh, where in this first edition that I have here, there's a fucking apostrophe in details, which shouldn't <laughs> fucking be there. It's also in the omnibus. They never changed it. Jesus Christ. Of all the things you could change. <laughs> there was another. There, there was actually a, a small conversation in the comments that I didn't include in the in the do, the document, but just um, the first edition that I believe Sai has got um, has is riddled with. Um, there's all sorts of like editing and typos and. Uh, I'm just scrolling through my notes, and the only the only the things we haven't mentioned is that cat keeps a buttered roll handy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really that was like. really good. That made me laugh. Crichton serves caviar niblets to the crew of the Nova Five, and caviar niblets is something that's uh, mentioned in Legion as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's obviously a Robin go to posh food. Can I have your niblets? <laughs> oh, and also, okay, finally for me, uh, for my small points. Uh, there's a bit uh, in part 22 of this part. Uh, Rimmer uses the phrase "smart Alec," not "smart Alex." Ah. So, in the book universe, he knows the correct phrase. <laughs> wow, that's a deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, one last small point from the public, and it's more of a, an anecdote uh, rather than anything else. But it's a very interesting one from our good uh, Welsh friend Chris <laughs> Carter. He says. I pitched a graphic novel adaptation of this book to Grant Nader Productions and a few comic publishers back when I was still working within the comics industry. The general consensus was if I could get a publisher interested, then GMP would be interested. The responses I got from publishers were, we love the property, we like the idea, but we don't think there's a big enough audience to justify making it. Oh, well, it was a nice thought. All right, late 90s BBC. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's there now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's an audience of at least three that I know, <laughs> us three. I, th- I would, think I uh, think would buy the fuck out. I like um, on a digital. I mean, obviously, every industry is on fire right now. So let's assume yeah. that it wasn't. But um, digital distribution might might kind of grease the wheels there a bit. Might help. I don't mm. know. There's so many. There's so many things that like there was an idea moot that someone mooted on Twitter a while ago of like finding out who's got the rights to the magazine and collecting up yeah. like a big old coffee table like all the all the comics and the best of the written stuff of this magazine as a new edition and mm. I was like yes yeah. I want I not only want to own that I want to be involved in the making of that and like write mm. up all the bits in between for that but yeah there's so many great ideas of things that could happen uh, but with GMP things never seem to happen I think it's it, it's things like archiving costs as well that's where the majority of the money comes from when you deal with this, stuff like that I think because mm. like Andrew Allard had a lot of trouble of getting stuff out of storage mm. and requesting things from, from tapes from the archives and that kind of stuff that's where the money goes in terms of like how long it takes to put something like that together and I think that's where and also like you said like like it's like video games now you, you can't find the original publishers you don't know who owns the rights before they all got yeah, bought there's, by there's yeah. games, X, Y, and There's Z games company. that end up like an insurance company in Texas just happens to own the rights to a load of games because mm-hmm. they bought up the assets of a company that was liquidated 20 years ago. You know, weird stuff like that. Fun fact, Pac-Man is owned by a hot dog stall in New York. <laughs> okay. It's not true. Oh, right. <laughs> I should say as well that Chris, like, I love Chris's... Um, um, work and his style, and he obviously has done a lot of Red Dwarf yeah. uh, stuff. And if you're not aware of Chris and you're on GNT, then well, a you should, and b you should um, look him up. Well, 
I've just about had my fill of small points. I don't know about you guys. I'd much rather go in for a small passage at this stage. <laughs> yeah, I uh, guess. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so a, a small passage is uh, where we go through and, and just pick out uh, a short extract of the book uh, that we really enjoyed or that really sticks with us or is memorable for whatever reason. Uh, so who wants to who wants to present their small passage first? I can. Go, go, go on, go. Daniel. Mine's a little bit long, but it it needs it in order for it to work. It was funny. The original Rimmer thought, staring at his duplicate, he never realised before how big his Adam's apple appeared in profile, or how small and triangular his chin was. He'd never been aware that his nostrils flared so ludicrously, or that his nose twitched like a dormouse whenever he was concentrating. It was a stupid-looking face, really. As he watched, his double slipped a hand into his pocket, felt around him, pretended to cough, surreptitiously popped a hologrammatic mint into his mouth. Pathetic. Deeply, deeply pathetic, thought Rimmer. They're computer-simulated mints. There's no limit to their number, so why didn't they offer me one? Absently, he slipped his chin below the table and sucked a hologrammatic boiled sweet from the line of three on his knee. Because he's mean, he thought, sucking silently. He's pathologically mean. The double looked up and gave Rimmer a watery half-smile, forcing him to return to his Napoleonic diaries. The duplicate wondered idly if Rimmer knew he was beginning to lose his hair on the back of his crown, and if he knew how small and triangular his chin looked <laughs> from this angle, above that megalithic Adam's apple, which bobbed up and down ludicrously, like a hamster caught in a garden hose. <laughs> <laughs> and why did he never offer him one of his boiled sweets? Why did he instead did he have to go through that absurd surround of ducking below the table and sucking them off his knee? Because he was mean, that was the top and bottom of it, pathologically so. <laughs> and I just I like that one because it's 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 t- it's slightly different, like the way that yeah. they are slightly different, yeah, and the way that they are seeing each other, but they're seeing the same problems. If it was absolutely word for word identical in the same way that the Future Echoes scene is, it wouldn't be as good. It's the fact it that they both work. they both make the exact same points and come to the exact same conclusions, but in a slightly different order and worded slightly differently. Yeah, it's perfect. The whole me squared thing is summed up in that passage, just because yeah. of the way that they see each other and the fact, that, and the fact that he's he isn't thinking about how he looks; he's thinking about how his other self looks and how stupid they look. He's yeah. not thinking about it in terms of that's me. He's thinking of that's that fucking idiot <laughs> over there. I take back what I said about that we never go into the alternate Rimmer's head because <laughs> we do quite yeah. notably. <laughs> just briefly though. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, shall I present my passage? <laughs> yeah, good. Like a cat. <laughs> well, how apt. Uh, this is a section regarding the development of the cat race. Then there was a plague, and the plague was hunger. Less than 30 cat tribes now survived, roaming the cargo decks on their hind legs in a desperate search for food. But the food had gone. The supplies were finished. Weak and ailing, they prayed at the supply hold Silver Mountains. Huge, towering acres of metal rocks which, in their pagan way, the mutant cats believed watched over them. Amid the wailing and the screeching, one cat stood up and held aloft the sacred icon, the icon which had been passed down as holy and one day would make its use known. It was a piece of V-shaped metal with a revolving handle on its head. He took down a silver rock from the silver mountain, while the other cats cowered and screamed at the blasphemy. He placed the icon on the rim of the rock and turned the handle. And the handle turned, and the rock opened, and inside the rock was Alphabetti spaghetti in tomato sauce. <laughs> and in the other rocks were even more delights, sugar-free baked beans, 
chicken and mushroom toasty toppers, faggots in rich meaty gravy, all sealed in perfect vacuums preserved from the ravages of time. God had spoken, and Phila Sapiens was born. Which is just like the whole of that chapter is so beautifully written. Yeah. And but yeah, that the reveal of the alphabetic spaghetti <laughs> is always something that's made me laugh. And yay, individual sachets of mustard. <laughs> I do like how incredibly optimistic it is about the ability for tinned goods to last <laughs> three million yeah, years. Three million years. <laughs> yeah. If anyone's watched um, Ashens on YouTube, you know that that's horrendously inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's fu- future canned foods so they've got a special alloy vacuum storage that's as well true. so that's a bigger thing yeah. Yeah. they've developed tin technology <laughs> in the intervening years and it took me far too long to realise as a kid that the, the sacred icon was a, just a tin, tin up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so it's been passed down and there's knowledge being passed down of it will one day make its use known so yeah. where does that knowledge, like that knowledge must come from someone, like someone must have known at one point. Um, it's probably the thing about the, the, the seven socks, one shirt, okay, yeah. listed laundry kind of thing. It's like those, that yeah, information yeah. gets filtered down through, yeah, you know, maybe there was it'd be some, it'd be some instruction manual for a tin opener that just got, yeah. you know, the, the translation got lost over time, you know. And that, that's religion, isn't it? That's like, that's yeah. the, the point that they're making. That's a bit like Jesus, things. isn't it? <laughs> so what else is new? <laughs> Go on then, Kepsi. All right then. <clears throat> Passage time. Holly was busy. He was busy worrying. He'd given up trying to navigate the ship at super light speed. He was fairly certain they'd already passed directly through the middle of seven planets and at least one sun. It was completely impossible to avoid them because they only appeared on his Navicom after the event. Still, for some reason, the ship seemed to have survived intact, so he decided not to worry about it. Another slight concern was that Red Dwarf seemed to be following another Red Dwarf, and they, in turn, seemed to be followed by yet another. In fact, when Holly examined it closely, they seemed to be flying in a convoy of at least 26 Red Dwarfs. Holly reasoned that he couldn't do much about it, so he decided not to worry about this either. <laughs> Very short uh, passage, but... But a good one. The reason I picked that out is the way that Rob and Doug, again, managed to visualise something incredibly complicated and silly um yeah. and you know some, something that was just a brief moment in in on the tv of just we've hit light speed and holly's a bit pixelated of diving into what, exactly what was going on and you know some bits of obviously some bits of um, knowledge about you know quantum theory chucked in there as well about what might happen if you were going at light speed it's just it's very rich and mm. also very funny <laughs> i'm starting to come to the conclusion that book holly is vastly superior to tv holly yeah like Suits with me. with the others it's like i love each and every version of rimmer and every version of lister and obviously i'm a huge fan of tv holly uh as well especially in these early days when he was a bigger part of the yeah. ensemble uh than he, than he he or she was in later series but yeah the fact that we get so much more holly in the book and we hear so much more from his point of view it's it's a lovely thing. It really makes him a key figure, more so than he ever was in TV. Crichton gets a similar treatment as well. Mm. Uh, I think I think Crichton gets fleshed out really well later on. Uh, not in this book. Yeah, maybe in this book a little bit, but um, mainly the next one. Um, like being inside their heads is a bit more interesting because they're unusual beings. They're unusual heads. Yeah, their yeah, thought processes. Heads. Their yeah. thought processes don't work in the same way as ours. Exactly. Yeah, these are all 
things to discuss in future podcasts. Uh, and the next one that we do will be on part three of Infinity Welcomes Careful Drivers, which is entitled Earth. <laughs> we will be recording our discussion of that part uh, on the weekend of the 8th or 9th of August. Uh, so that is your deadline for keeping your getting your comments in. Uh, it's a shorter part next time uh, than this one. It's a much, much shorter part. Uh, so uh, we'll be taking the opportunity to uh, discuss the book in general as well. So as before, uh, leave your comments in the article for this particular podcast over at uh, www.ganymede.tv. Please let us know whether you're referring to a specific uh, subchapter or it's more of a general one about the part or the book in general. Uh, please try your best to keep it brief if you'd like yeah. us to include it. Uh, but equally, uh, you know, it's great that the discussion is happening around these podcasts. We don't necessarily have to uh, read everything out. Uh, it's just lovely to have that conversation happening in our community. As you pointed out earlier, Capsi, off air, when we were when you were sort of compiling the list of comments that have come in, it's remarkable that this level of discussion is happening on a on an actual website in 2020 when. <laughs> yeah. You know, discussion online is is just splintered and fractured so much that you know it's really lovely and heartwarming that you've cho- that so many people have chosen to join us on rereading the books uh, and commenting Indeed. along with us. So thanks, uh, but you know, keep it brief. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the meantime, before we get to that next edition of the book club, uh, we will be doing our commentary on uh, Samsara, and that podcast will also contain the next edition of Waffle Men. Uh, the section in which we bollock on about anything you want us to. Uh, so if you want to suggest a topic for that uh, or ask us a question, then again, leave a comment on GNT or you can tweet us. Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. In the meantime, that's quite enough bollocking on for one week. Uh, so thanks so much for listening, if indeed you have been. Uh, stay safe, guys. And until next time. Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye.